No commercials, no subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. And when we boast no comparison, really, we're talking about shows like tonight. Nowhere else are you going to hear this, my friends. The annual BOA Audio Holiday Tradition, Rucks Giving, where we welcome back our dear friend, Bruce Rucks, to the program. Take listener questions, catch up, talk. It's like sitting around, really... I don't know if it's like this where you live, folks. I think it is everywhere, though. Uh, you know, Thanksgiving, you go to the you go to the bar on the on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and you run into a whole bunch of old friends, and you catch up and you talk. That's what Rucks Giving is here for BOA Audio. Bruce Rucks, the amazing Bruce Rucks, author of Architects of the Underworld and Hollywood versus the Aliens. He's part of the fabric of BOA Audio. He's got a holiday named after him here on the show. For goodness sake, folks. Bruce Rocks, welcome back to the show. Looking forward to it this year. I already have a feeling it's going to be a barn burner, my friend. As always, a pleasure to be here. Awesome, awesome. And what I like also about the Rocks Giving holidays, it's a lot like uh, Thanksgiving here at my house because I get to really enjoy quite a feast and I don't have to really do any work. You know, like we leave it up to the listeners to do all that. So, <laughs> uh, well, let's. Let's catch up with you. What have you been up to since the last time we talked to you? It's actually been like a whole year now. Uh, we, we didn't do anything special in the, in the past year to bring you back. So what's been going on with Bruce Rucks since Rucks Giving 2013? Well, mostly uh, I was just kind of consumed with death watch for my mom. Uh, she finally passed at the end of last month, a couple of days before Thanksgiving, or uh, not Thanksgiving, before Halloween. Hmm. And uh, we buried her on Election Day, sadly, but she was very anxious to move on. Uh, she had lived in, and had all the experiences she wanted in her life and very very much wanted to move on at that point. Uh, she was kind of falling apart. Uh, pretty much my entire year was kind of taken up with that, just uh, taking care of the house, uh, helping to take care of her. Um, death Watch is its own peculiar kind of job, and it's very depressing. Hmm. Uh, but that is over now, and uh, I'm actually feeling tremendously better. I've seen all kinds of symptoms of coming out of depression as opposed to going into them. And um, I'm feeling pretty good, actually. Nice, nice. Yeah, obviously, our deepest condolences to you, uh, you know, on the loss of your mom. We talked earlier, so uh, I, I knew about this. I wasn't surprised uh, when we talked about it. So, um, you know, just just really rough. I, I went through the whole the whole thing uh, years ago with my dad. So, and uh, as I said, we talked, we, we discussed this off the year. So, 
it's kind of weird. But, uh, yeah, you know, it uh, sounds like you're in a good place now. And it seems like just from talking to you over the last few weeks and everything, uh, you seem to have a vim and a vigor and, and really, uh, you know, a lust for what's out there right now. So I think uh, I'm feeling better than I have in three years, I have to say. Hmm. It's when someone is dying, it's a very depressing thing. Uh, part of you is kind of dying with them. Uh, there's a lot uh, that's weighing on your shoulders because there's the suspense involved. There's only it's not death that you're living with so much as dread. Mm, yeah. Because uh, you don't know when is it going to happen, how is it going to happen, is it going to go easy, is it going to go hard, how bad is it going to be. Uh, but then when that's over, and she passed very peacefully, just by the by, she went well, as mm. I like to put it. Uh, once that's over, once they're dead, there's no more dread. It's all done. The movie's over. You go home and you get on with your life. And uh, since she passed easily and since she, she was very, very much ready to go, uh, it was not a surprise, and most of the grieving process had already been taken care of over the last three years. So moving on was much, much easier than it would have been otherwise. That's great. That's great. Um, well, we'll move on then. We'll uh, we'll we'll get into uh, into the Brucksgiving festivities again. Obviously, though, uh, you know, my heart goes out to you, buddy. I've been Thank there in, in a lot of ways, so I uh, I totally understand what you're going through. Uh, well, as I said before, we started the the uh, conversation here for the audience. Uh, this kind of piqued my interest here, and I'm sure I asked you this, you know, in, in probably in our original conversation on the show uh, years and years ago. But it would be good for a little follow-up and sort of even to focus in a little more. Because I'm sure when we first talked, it was like, give me your bio background. This time around, I really just want to know kind of what lit the spark for you to to bring aliens into your life. Let's, <laughs> let's put it that All way. Right. You know, because that's kind of a good dividing line between folks uh, out there. You know, so, sure. Most folks I work with, they, they don't even deal with aliens. So, you know, so what, what was it that, that got it all going for you? Well, that's a multi-layered question, but I'll try and keep it as brief as possible. Uh, there were several things, and it was over the course of a lifetime. Uh, I had had a general interest. I'd always loved science fiction and space stuff when I was a kid. Uh, I was one of the original Star Trek fans. Before there, were, before there was a word Trekkies to describe anybody, I was the original Trekkie. Nice. Um, so uh, there was that. Uh, Outer Limits was one of my favorite TV shows. Uh, I was very much concentrated on space and the idea of aliens and things like that. This was only one of many interests, of course. It wasn't an obsession or anything, but certainly it was one of my primary interests. Uh, I didn't study UFOs too much when I was a kid, and it wasn't really discussed much around the house. But um, occasionally it would come up. By the time I hit junior high, ancient astronauts had become a big thing. And I was very much into the ancient astronauts uh, craze, as it were. Yeah. Uh, Von Däniken may not have been the best scholar. In fact, he was a pretty poor one. But he at least did raise a lot of interesting questions. And like the Internet, he was hardly the last place that you could go for... Uh, the, he was hardly in a place he could go for the last word on anything, but he was a great place for the first word on anything. Oh, that's a great way to put it. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Uh, I did a lot of research. There were many better ancient astronaut authors out there. Uh, all of whom you will find in my bibliography. I've got an extensive library of them that I've been collecting for years. Uh, and again, it was not an obsession. It was just something, it was one of many different subjects that I liked researching from time to time. So over the years, I picked up quite a bit of information. As to what started crystallizing my interest in it, uh, first off would have been the face on Mars back in 1976. Uh, I could definitely see a face there. And uh, as shows in my book, I was seeing a different face than everyone else was seeing. It looked to me like a hawk, and I still believe it is. 
Uh, in fact, the later images of it that have been completely unretouched and are just straight shots from 2000 and uh, 2001, I believe, from the Mars probes, uh, look even more like a hawk as far as I'm concerned. Huh. Uh, just very straight. It's hard to miss. You can see the figure eight of the beak, uh, where the center of the beak overlaps in the middle. Interesting. Uh, I have to look at this. Yeah, it's it's the face of Ra is what it is, and in Egyptian mythology, that's exactly what the Sphinx was supposed to be made in the image of. It's supposed to be made in the image of Ra. Uh, well, our Sphinx plainly isn't, although it could have been at one time. The thing has been resculpted at least once or twice, <coughs> so there is a possibility that it was at one time. But the one on Mars is a hawk, and the hawk is raw. So uh, that started my interest in Egyptology and getting some research in on that. Uh, many years after that, there was someone that I had grown up with who had had some extremely peculiar experiences over the course of their life, uh, which they had told me at the time that they happened, and I never quite knew what to make of them. So they just kind of got stuck on a, a little side file or back burner in my head. Yeah, uh, that's where I put anything that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me, but might be of interest in someday in future. Your gray basket, as Stan Friedman calls it. My gray basket. That's a good way to put it. Um, many years after that, I came across David Jacobs' book. I had read Bud Hopkins. Uh, I'd read at least one of his books. Uh, I had read Whitley Strieber and was not terribly impressed. Uh, Bud Hopkins was also a little bit confusing, but at least the subject was interesting, and I didn't know what to make of any of that stuff. So I actually wasn't studying it too intently at that time, but it was a side interest that I would occasionally pick up and look into. What really gave me a handle on UFO abductions was David Jacobs' first book. Uh, his second book went a little bit off the rails, but there were probably reasons for that. His first book was really focused, really centered, and very well studied and structured. Uh, what I noticed reading his book was everything that this person I was talking about had told me over the years codified. <laughs> Literally everything that he was talking about from abductees, this person had told me Weird. at the same ages that he had listed people having these experiences. And I remembered it. Uh, I, and I had not talked to that person before I wrote either of my books. I have talked to that person since. Uh, they also believe that they are uh, very likely an abductee. Uh, what's interesting about that, uh, the person in question had no interest at all in UFOs. I mean, just none. Uh, they had a great deal of interest in all kinds of other paranormal subjects. They were interested in haunted houses uh, or psychic phenomena, anything like that. But they really didn't have any interest in UFOs. Yeah. But everything that they were describing fit uh, what David Jacobs had outlined, and at the same years, I mean, if someone had an experience when they were like seven or eight, I remember that person having the same experience right about seven or eight and telling me about it. Yeah, yeah, that's a, like a, that's a unique kind of like uh, confirmation situation you find yourself Exactly, in. Yeah. exactly. Well, at that point, uh, there are only one of two choices you have. You can say this is either a unique psychological condition that happens to some people, and the person that I know has it, or it's exactly what David Jacobs is claiming it is, and what some of the people involved in it are claiming it is, and that is that they were picked up. Uh, somebody came by and picked them up, and they were doing it repeatedly over the course of these people's lives and performing various procedures on them. Uh, I believe the latter, uh, because just applying Occam's razor, that frankly made more sense to me. Yeah. Uh, I could see how that would fit this particular interpretation far easier than I could some really bizarre and random just psychological uh, thing that didn't have any explanation behind it. Right, right. So that kind of focused my interest and uh, got me looking into it a little bit more. 
Uh, at that point, I got back into the ancient astronaut research because I always found that to be the most uh, the most promising of all UFO research was in ancient astronauts. Uh, that's when I read with Zechariah Sitchin and uh, some related authors and got back into my old library on ancient astronauts. Uh, at that point, uh, I corresponded briefly with Sitchin and got invited to go on that first trip to Egypt in 1994. And um, having met him was a very interesting experience. We've talked about that several times before on the show. Yeah, yeah. Actually, let me let me. This never really dawned on me, but uh, how did how did you how did he end up inviting you? Like it just, just seems really random. Uh, just just from correspondence that he saw you were interested in it, or or you know, it seems just seems kind of like like wow, you really lucked out in a sense. To get to, well, to be invited to go to Egypt, I mean that's pretty big. That's a pretty just, big sort of honor, if you will. He it was uh, really. He just happened to be organizing his first trip. He was just going on a first trip to Egypt, and uh, since I was in correspondence with him, he thought, well, you might be interested. Would you like to come on this thing? And you know, what am I going to say? No. Wow. So yeah. sure, I went ahead. Uh, a very interesting trip, and has been talked about again several times prior. Hmm. Uh, for all kinds of reasons, it was interesting. But um, in any event, that was where I met him, and it was in the course of that trip. He really didn't have anything to do with this, but it was in the course of that trip that I decided I might try and write a book on uh, on UFOs and uh, ancient astronauts and all of my research, because I did have a, an entire lifetime of research behind me, hmm. and uh, it was especially focused at that time. And that's exactly what I did. Nice. All right. I think that brings us up to speed on on the bio background. That's I, I don't think you'd ever told the story about your friend before on here. I don't remember ever hearing that. Uh, way back, I think in the first um, when we did the three part thing with the uh, Hollywood versus hmm. the aliens. Okay, yeah, maybe, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll trust your memory better than mine on that. Um, all right, very interesting, very interesting. I feel like I could go even further into this, but we have all these listener questions, so. Oh yeah, certainly. You know, um, we'll save we'll save that we'll we'll continue that as, we'll serialize that <laughs> sure. for down the line. Um, and and so as I joked at the beginning here, what I like about the Rock's giving thing is I don't, really don't have to do any work because people send in all these questions. But now this year, folks just sent in. It was it was a, it was a handful of folks, but they sent in a ton of questions. So it's uh it's, it's quite a mass of material to dig through. And I, I did everybody a favor by making sure that I compiled all these, got them all together, sent them to Bruce ahead of time so we weren't both kind of scratching our heads like... Uh, They're mostly know. pretty good. Also. Yeah. yeah. Like, what's Deep Space Nine? That's me. I would be saying that. Bruce knows what it is. Uh, but anyway, so let's just dive on in. The first one here comes from Mark. He says he is near the Monster Lock in Scotland. So we're already starting out with uh, with an emailer internationally. At paranormal location as well, and I'm interested in Nessie, by the way. Really? Yes. Let's stop there and talk about that first. What, what What's your interest in Nessie? What do you? Because uh, I'm kind of, I've kind of given up on Nessie. I'm kind of like, uh, I think it was oh. probably, you know, I don't think it was that big a deal. But, but yeah, we, I don't have any kind of solid evidence that Nessie exists or uh, Bigfoot either, for that matter. But I'm hmm. interested in cryptozoology. Yeah. That's, there's not a whole lot of story to that. I'm just I'm interested <laughs> okay. in cryptozoology. I'll, I'll bring one up uh, as a cryptozoological interest. Uh, if anyone's ever heard of the Beast of Gévaudan, uh, the Beast of Gévaudan was uh, some kind of monster that tore a whole lot of people apart in France during, I forget which Louis' reign it was, 
in exactly which year, I think it was in the 1700s. Um, I'm going back on my memory here. It's been a long time since I looked at the piece to give it on. Oh, I think I saw like a Discovery Channel special about this thing. Yes, you probably have seen several. Hmm. Uh, I, I think they largely answered that question pretty well. Uh, they suggested that the thing was actually, that it actually existed, and that what it probably was was a hyena. And at first, I thought, you know, that's how would you get a hyena in France? And I thought, what the hell am I talking about? I did all kinds of research on pirates. There was trade going back and forth all over the place, and lots of ships went to Africa. Hmm. You could get a stowaway hyena easy, or someone could have picked one up. And uh, this one appeared to be either relatively trained or um, at least semi-controlled. But, yeah, I came to the conclusion that they were probably correct that this was a hyena that was killing a bunch of people out there. It matched the description pretty well. Um, it certainly had the capacity to have done so, and is the type of animal that would have it would have committed the kind of killings that were described. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that they pretty well nailed that one on the head. But that's just an example of my interest in cryptozoology and trying to answer strange creatures like Nessie. Mm, interesting, interesting. Do you have an opinion on what Nessie is, then? My own guess is if Nessie is there, and I'm not going to rule out that Nessie is there, uh, probably a misplaced plesiosaur. Uh, there might be a small school of them still living under there all the way back from whichever prehistoric age they came from just because the conditions are right for them, and they just continue breeding. Interesting, interesting. I, I, that, a lot of people don't even that, – that, like that seems like the popular sort of idea in the mainstream, but most people it, it kind of dismiss it as implausible. So why do you think that's even – because I've always been kind of like – I thought it was the body of water was too small for, like, for a breeding population of these things in there. It may have some channel we don't know about where it goes. Hmm. I really don't know. There are all kinds of different dinosaur reports from different parts of the world or what sound like dinosaurs, uh, especially South America. Uh, there are descriptions that sound like a diplodocus, um, an upright thing with a particular fin on top of its head. It sounds like a diplodocus to me. I mean, every kid has studied, boys anyway, every boy who was ever in elementary school has studied dinosaurs. And yeah. I did a lot. So I'm getting this description and saying, well, you know, that sounds very much like a diplodocus. And I don't think these people in South America know what a diplodocus is. So uh, my guess is, if it is there, uh, that's probably what's running around somewhere in um, South American jungles, and we just don't see it because the South American jungles are pretty big. <laughs> yeah, they're just deep in there. That's all. And occasionally someone sees one. And people didn't believe that uh, gorillas and orangutans were real either until someone brought one back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <coughs> Very interesting. All right, so Mark, uh, Mark near the monster lock in Scotland. I also have to give him credit. He wrote. We wrapped up season eight on October thirtieth. Uh, with plans to do this show pro tonight, essentially. I had pretty much uh, the 25th penciled in. And c kudos to Mark. He actually sent the email two days after we wrapped up the season. He sent it on November 1st before... before I, I just said we were going to do a Rucksgiving, and next thing I know, I had already gotten an email from someone with questions. So that's how uh, fervent the Rucks fans are in the audience. So here's the uh, first batch of questions, really, from uh, from our listeners. Mark, near the monster lock in Scotland, he says, From my background as a stonemason, I would value Bruce's thoughts on the parallels he may have mused on between the construction of the pyramids that he has gone into in past shows and your very own coral castle in Florida. So he's asking uh, he's asking if he, if, about, you know, thoughts on the construction of the pyramids and how it might connect to the coral castle in Florida. And he says uh, there seems to be Correlations between the two, if for no other reason than the architect of Coral stated to some people that he knew how the pyramids were built 
And if you take into account that he quarried, moved, and built single blocks of stone up to 25 tons on his own and in the dark by all accounts, and as a mason of the geological kind for over 25 years who relies on and curses gravity in the same breath, there's really no argument from me. So he uh, he he, won, he he thinks you might have mentioned this before, but he's not sure, and he really values your thoughts on this high engineering strangeness, which is a good description. I wish I could answer to those high engineering strangenesses. The second trip I went to Egypt was with Robert Baval and his brother Jean-Paul, both of whom are professional engineers. And um, Robert has spent most of his life in Egypt, actually. Uh, we did a pyramid tour, meaning we went to all of the pyramids, all of the main pyramids. Uh, I mean, there are, I don't know, about 100 pyramids around Egypt, uh, but the primary ones, the ones you always read about in the books, we visited all of those. And, of course, we discussed them at quite some length. And we got to raise a lot of the engineering questions, because these are, in fact, professional engineers, and if anyone would know, they would. So we had quite a few discussions on that and other fascinating things that the ancient Egyptians should not have been able to do but were. Uh, Beauvoir was quite convinced that plainly they had some kind of advanced technology that we are simply unaware of, and so am I. Uh, I think in, any of us in the alternate Egyptology school, if you want to call it that, uh, are at least agreed that the ancient Egyptians had technology that we are unaware of and that it was far more advanced than the traditional Egyptologists admit. Uh, I believe that most of us have the belief that that came from a prior civilization, that it was a legacy. And there is where you start uh, having problems. It's like, well, was it from this planet? Was it from another planet? Was it Atlantis? Where was it located? Who were these people? What happened right, to them? Right. That's when all the primary questions start really popping up. Mm. So we agree that, that it's not necessarily ironclad answered who that civilization was or where they were located, but we agreed that that civilization almost certainly had to have existed and passed this on as a legacy to Egypt. Uh, as to the actual technology involved, really guesswork. It's impossible to say. Uh, one of my guesses, given that uh, Egyptian obelisks are hollow, is that it might have something to do with sound waves, uh, and sound waves being able to alter physical properties, but this is some, this is something that could be tested. Right. Now, I don't have the facilities to do this, but someone could test it. Uh, I do know that in raising ceremonies, uh, they used to ring those like a gong or a bell, sort of. Uh, they made a musical note. And uh, I'm wondering if, because they, they make a musical note today. I mean, if you hit them, uh, you can do this with the king's coffer in the Great Pyramid. If you slap the king's coffer in the Great Pyramid, just give it a good whack on the side, it'll actually resonate on a note, and you can hear it. It's made that way, and the obelisks are also. And what I'm thinking is that the ringing of the obelisk or of the stone itself, uh, because of the way it's built, might actually lighten its weight temporarily while it's doing that, because it might be exciting the atoms in some way. But this is, I really wouldn't know. I'm not a physicist. It's an idea. Right, right. Uh, right. Since I know they happen to do that, and since I know these are extremely heavy, and yet they seem to pull them up with relative ease, um, it's something that could be tested and uh, that someone might want to, to work on or try. Um, that's about my best guess. When it comes to lifting the kind of weights that we're talking about for blocks of the pyramid, uh, and the same for Coral Castle, Man, uh, obviously the guy that did Coral Castle was doing it on his own, and I do believe those reports because there's just no evidence that anyone helped him. 
And even if they did, we still wouldn't have an answer for how they were lifting those kind of weights, putting them into place, and and setting them in such a way that, uh, I mean, you can punch them and, and move them like a door, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and we're talking massive weights here. How the hell are they setting them like this? Uh, these are just fantastic engineering feats. Well, this guy claimed to have been doing it on his own, and I believe him. Uh, for I think it took him 20 years, if I remember right, or about that neck of the woods. Yeah, yeah, I haven't looked into it enough. Uh, just the just the question alone, I just uh, secretly typed in Coral Castle to not not to look it up, but to set up a future show <laughs> on yeah. VOA Audio for this. Cause well, it was like a, a hobby story. for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really want to know as much about it as possible. Uh, I've heard about it alluded to over the years, but I've never really dug enough into it. Yeah, he was just going out periodically with you know his big pieces of coral and uh, setting up a little bit more of the castle, sort of a uh, recreation. And after 20 years, he had the damn thing built. And everyone's looking at it saying, how the hell did this get here? And he's like, well, you know, hey, guys. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, how did he do it? Beats me. But plainly, if one guy could do this with these kind of weights, then this must not have been too difficult. Every time I asked Boval or his brother about this, uh, they're, they're both real sweetheart guys, uh, by the way. Jean-Paul's a real nice guy. Uh, every time I would ask about one of these massive engineering feats, they'd be they'd be explaining the size of the blocks, the weight, how far in they were put, the type of tension and torque that it would take for even a modern crane of the the biggest variety that we have to be able to do this, which it would not be able to, by the way. Uh, the tension and torque are too great when you go into the further in. Um, how the hell did they do it? Right. And they would always say it was easy, and I would say. What was that easy way? And their answer was, I don't know. But for them, it was easy. It had to be, or they wouldn't have done it. Right, exactly. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, clearly, yeah, yeah. They wouldn't they wouldn't just try and do something like that uh, without, without ha- knowing how to do it in the first place. So With incredible precision. Mm. I mean, precision that we are not capable of. To, we may, if we are capable of it today, we have not accomplished it today. Yeah. All right, so I think that I think that covers uh, Mark's question. So we'll move to the next ones because it, it covers it as, as well as I can answer it. Right, personally. exactly. Yeah. If he was looking for us to explain to him how the pyramids and Coral Castle were built, where he why would he I have SOL. a book there? We, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, you why know. would I have a book there? <laughs> if we knew the answer to that, we wouldn't be doing this show. We'd be. Uh, Somehow we'd be wealthy. We'd be like, uh, you got it. We'd be working on something much, much bigger. (laughs) I would Uh, be a professional engineer myself. Exactly. We'd be we'd be building these pyramids and coral castles all over the country, for God's sakes. Uh, All right. Next email or uh, question comes from Ian. Uh, I think we can use his full name here, Ian Skullsaber, because I just like that last name, Ian Skullsaber. He says, "That's a great name." I know. To start off, Bruce might be the only writer whose theories I agree with almost one hundred percent outside of his opinion on Star Trek the Next Generation. <laughs> yeah. That's completely out of my out of my out of my <laughs> basket of knowledge, so I I am just going to leave it there. <laughs> that, that's a gener- that is literally a generational thing. Uh the people from my generation really don't care for that show. It's too PC. Hmm. But uh people from obviously are from the younger generation, they love it. Uh he wants to know if you have an opinion on Deep Space 9. Uh, not terribly. Uh, I my friends were always trying to get me into Deep Space Nine. I've seen some episodes of it, and it's not a bad show. I enjoyed what I did see. Uh, but the guy that was most pushing that show on me over the years, 
also happened to run off with my girlfriend at one point, and that kind of soured the whole thing for me. Uh, yeah. So I just really never got into Deep Space Nine all that seriously. I did see uh, part of the first couple of seasons, uh, as I recall, and I remember there being some, uh, there was a particular ufological element, uh, but I can't remember the name of this weird ambassador. He's got this big costume on and kind of a uh, single eye and a mask for a face. Uh, he struck me as a sort of a ufological element, but it's been so long since I've seen it. Uh, I mean, we're, we're really going back here. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't watch it in any great detail, so I can't really go too much into that. I do know Harlan Ellison was involved with that uh, at the beginning. Is that the one with the lady captain? Uh, right? Wasn't, wasn't was the Kate Mulgrew or something? I could have sworn. Oh, wait. I'm, am I even thinking? I'm not, that's not Deep Space Nine I'm thinking of. That's um, I just completely messed up your question. Maybe it was Deep Space Nine. No, 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 no. Wait. I have no idea. I might be wrong here. So. I'm thinking of something else. Oh, okay. Red Sun Superman says, no, uh, it was it was with the African-American captain. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Cisco. Okay, so I was wrong. See, I don't know. I don't know. Cisco. What, yeah, okay. Everyone I know loves Deep Space Nine. The question I was just answering was a completely different one, and I can't remember what show I'm talking about now. <laughs> um, you said, Sorry about that. Yeah, uh, it's Rock's uh, we, we have brain farts. <laughs> you get to be my age, and you have brain farts. Uh but anyway, Deep Space Nine, I also didn't get into too much. I'll tell you, any of the post-Star Treks, any of the the new boots of Star Trek, uh, I never really got into. What about the I, movies? Um, the new the ones? Movies? Well, I'll tell you, um, First Contact, I thought, was not a bad movie. And, uh, in, in fact, it was a pretty good one overall. And Nemesis, I thought, was very good. But those are the only ones of the next gen that I thought were worthwhile. Yeah. Uh, and of the originals, most of those weren't very good either. Uh, the second one was fantastic, uh, Wrath of Khan. And um, the fourth one was a great deal of fun. And you want to talk about ufological elements, you bring the Enterprise back into our time, and they are a UFO. <laughs> you know, what are they doing? Yeah, uh, They're going around doing whatever these advanced people are doing, which is a lot like what UFOs are about. Um, I, that's actually a very fun movie. So those two in particular, I think, are are pretty good. Okay. Uh, I've named two good original Star Trek movies and two good next gen movies uh, that I that I think are worthwhile. Um, the ones that I named, I think, are very well written and they're well produced. And uh, I can't say that for most of the rest of the series. The reboot that J.J. J. Abrams did, I thought it, that's just fantastic. I think he's doing a really really good job with that. All right. Has Shatner been in either of those reboot movies, the new ones? No, I think he, he really should. He's got a cameo, yeah. He really should. He probably will, maybe in the third one. Seems kind of yeah. ridiculous. Well, he's getting up there. Mm. Uh, it, it would be nice to see him before he goes. Yeah, if you can shoehorn Stan Lee into all these different Marvel movies, you can definitely get... He, he, yeah, Stan Lee appears in all of them. Right, that's what I mean, so... <laughs> you look forward, it's like Alfred Hitchcock, you look forward to the cameo. You know he's going to be in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, all right, so I think we covered Deep Space Nine. You never really got into it, so you don't have to really have an opinion. Um, yeah, all of the post-Star Treks, I just really couldn't get into. I, I tried them. I tried to get into them, but I just couldn't follow them. Babylon, uh, the Babylon thing is the one I was answering earlier. Um, and I can't remember the name of that one either. Uh, Babylon something. Babylon 5. Oh, okay, was, you're thinking of Babylon 5 instead. I was okay. thinking of Babylon 5 when, when he asked Deep Space Nine. Okay. Because so, um, I bet you people would be, like, forever wondering which... Well, what show was he talking about? So we... <laughs> yeah, it was Babylon 5. Anyway, uh, yeah, the post-Star Treks I just really never cared for. Uh, Roddenberry was not always the most creative guy in the world, uh, and most of his shows stunk just straight up. 
most of Star Trek, <clears throat> most of the original Star Trek working, a lot of that had to do with Leslie Stevens and is unacknowledged by most people. But Leslie Stevens actually had a lot to do with that. The guy that created uh, The Outer Limits, uh, he also had a big hand in the original Battlestar Galactica. He had a hand in a whole lot of stuff hmm. that was not always visible at the time. didn't emerge until later years. Yeah. Uh, then he has a second question. Have either of you had the chance to check out Attack on Titan, which apparently I think is a manga series, because uh, I Googled it. Um, and I, I have not, beyond Googling it just now, I have no idea what uh, about no, I haven't either. Attack on Titan. I never really got into manga or comic books. or, or that, I really don't have, you know, I don't do that. Oh, I do, I do like that stuff. Okay. Uh, I'm not big into it, but I do like that stuff. Uh, you can learn a hell of a lot from manga, Japanime, or any of that. Hmm. Uh, and I'll tell you who does is Joss Whedon. Joss Whedon rips it off all the time. Oh, I'm sure it's great. I just don't, you know. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, that's Devil Hunter Yoko. And um, Firefly, the one that everyone's crazy about, but I wasn't so much, uh, that's just Cowboy Bebop. Okay. He just took he took Japanimes that no one had heard of in the West and westernized them. That's all. Nice. All right. Yeah. Like I said, I just... Uh... Never really got into it. I don't like yams either, so you know. They're definitely an acquired taste, uh, just like opera and Shakespeare is how I like to put it, or ballet. Mm. You have to flip a switch in your head to appreciate it. You have to flip a cultural switch because it's completely abnormal by our standards. Uh, but if you're able to flip that switch and appreciate it on its own terms, you can learn a hell of a lot from that stuff. Like lucha libre. Yeah. Uh, the next next question here comes from Red Sun Superman, who is in the uh, who's actually in the chat at this moment, so he'll he'll be able to listen to his questions being read and answered. Red Sun Superman has a few here. He uh, he wants to know what are a couple books that you've read recently that you'd recommend to BOA listeners. Well, I have to preface this by saying that I don't, uh, as a rule, read a whole lot of stuff about UFOs or related phenomena. Mm. I don't go into the New Age section and look for that stuff. So uh, unless it's something that I happen to be researching at any given time, I mostly ignore it. Uh, I don't consider most of what's reported to be worthwhile anyway. It's usually just it's stuff that's coming from the intelligence boys trying to throw out disinformation for anyone who's doing actual research. Uh, whenever there's an actual flap going on, and there were, I know there's a question coming up about uh, any flaps, I don't know of any recent flaps actually since about 2000 or that neck of the woods in Mexico. Uh, I know in the late 90s, uh, there was a big flap in Mexico. That's the last big one that I really remember hearing about, which doesn't mean that there haven't been any other ones. But if there have been, I haven't seen them in the news. Yeah. There was a huge UFO thing that happened. Um, I remember Fox News went crazy over this. <laughs> CNN was going nuts over it, too. This one in Texas? Uh, I don't think it was the one in Texas. This was one that was going over the East Coast. Oh, weird. Uh, there, there was a massive UFO uh, that was seen going from over several states in a given trajectory, and a whole lot of people saw this thing. And it, the, the boards were just lighting up all over CNN and Fox News. Uh, this would have been around uh, right about the 9-11 time, actually, or shortly after. It was when we were heavily militarizing and getting ready to, you know, Empire Strikes Back and all that nonsense. Yeah. Uh, there was this huge UFO thing that was going on on the East Coast. And CNN and Fox News both were literally just looking at the cameras with these kind of befuddled expressions saying, man, our boards are already lit up, but if anyone knows anything about this, please tell us, because we really do not know what this is. 
<clears throat> for about 24, maybe 48 hours, that was the big thing, especially on Fox News. CNN was hitting it pretty heavy, too. But then all of a sudden, bam, like it never happened. Never heard another word about it. Done. It was just finished. Like, like none of this that you had seen the last couple of days happened at all. That's no surprise. That's no surprise. And that's pretty much how this kind of thing gets handled anyway. So if there was a flap, I probably wouldn't notice. They'd put a squelch on it fast. Right, right. You you probably just kind of happen to be lucky to seeing the coverage of the t- at the time of it. Because like I asked exactly. about the Texas thing, and you didn't really... Uh, you oh, you're know. talking about the one in, in like '98. I think it was no. I think it was. You talking about the Phoenix lights? No, no, no. There was one in the aughts that was in Stephenville, Texas. That's like the signature case of the of the aughts. Oh no, I don't know that one. Yeah, see, so this is how far out of the loop I am. Hmm. I, I was doing my research, and I'm pretty firmly convinced that I came up with the correct answers. Uh, so anything else is sort of extraneous to me. Uh, if if I did come across something interesting, I'd be more than happy to talk about it. But really, I don't research it much. Yeah. Once I came up to, I'd spent my entire life studying this stuff. I came to my conclusions. Uh, I am pretty certain that I'm correct. And uh, that's kind of the end of it for me. So I'm just researching all kinds of other stuff. Nice, nice. On, in that vein, he, you know, uh, are there other books that you've read that you would recommend? That you, you know, or is it just kind of like? Uh... Oh dear God! On what subject? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, point me in a direction. I've read so many good books. Uh, I read all kinds of stuff. I read novels. I read nonfiction, and just a variety of different subjects. Yeah. Uh, Kennedy assassination, pirates. We got a pirate question coming up. Um, mystery school stuff, Gnosticism. Uh, I read so many different kinds of books. Point me in a direction, and I, I can maybe able to answer. I can give you some titles. All right. Well, he's in the chat, so maybe he will. And uh, while he thinks about that, we'll we'll go to the next question. Sure. At the end of the last Rucks giving, Bruce mentioned possibly writing a book on pirates that connects with the Templars. Sounded like he might never write that book, so let's best a short version on how he connects the dots between the two. And if they are connected, what's at the bottom of Oak Island? Red Sun Superman is obsessed with Oak Island, I should mention. So, uh, well, and I can see why. Oak Island is something to easily obsess over. Uh, I don't have any definitive answers on Oak Island. Uh, I lean toward the Elizabethans uh, with Francis Bacon and Inigo Jones as being responsible for that. Uh, but that gets into a little bit of alternate history. And I'm not sure. It, it, it's really kind of hard to determine with Oak Island. Yeah. Uh, whoever engineered it was really brilliant. And uh, I do believe that the Elizabethans would have been capable of doing that. Um, there could be a Templar connection with that, too. But again, this is this is all kind of nebulous. There's nothing I could nail down. Right. It's just directions that I look. Uh, I don't look at Oak Island all too often because it's just too perplexing. I'm, I'm familiar with its history, as are a lot of people. Um, but, I mean, you just hit a brick wall with it. Right. There's only so much information. So right. you could look at it, you know, because somebody was asking about it the other day on the Facebook page, and it was like, we did the definitive Oak Island episode like five years ago, and unfortunately, all it would be is someone coming on to tell the same stories and tell, you know, go right. the same stuff, and it's like, <laughs> I don't want to do that. Just listen to that episode. Uh, you Guess know. what? It's brilliantly built to baffle. There's, <laughs> yeah. There's no way to get past it. It is impossible to get, it, it can't be impossible to get past, but we have not yet discovered the way to get past it. Mm. Um, so that's that's the Oak Island part. What about uh, the connection between pirates and Templars? Okay, give us a little give us a little uh, thumbnail on this because I'm really interested. Uh, the thumbnail in the will pirate. not be short, but I'll keep it as short as I can. Because that's fair. What you're asking for is some kind of evidence that Templars, Masons, and pirates are connected. I will give you that. 
Um, and we'll see how short I can keep it. <laughs> okay, we'll keep we'll keep an eye on the clock here. No worries, though. No worries. It's all good. It's Rucksgiving. We uh, we're here to relax and have a good time and provide folks with a with a friendly conversation to listen to as they ride to Grandma's house uh, Wednesday or okay. Thursday. So it's all good. Okay. Well, this does happen to be a passion of mine because it's something that I latched onto a long, long time ago. Uh, I have to preface this story by a particular event, and that event is a a pirate ship called the Widda. Now, for any Masons out there, if you think I'm saying Widow, I'm not. It would be tempting to do so. It's Widda, W-H-Y-D-A-H. That was the name of the port from which the ship was launched. It was in west-central Africa, or Dahomey. Uh, the ship was called the Widda. It was a slave ship. On its maiden voyage, it was liberated by the Brethren of the Coast for pirate service, and I believe it only lived about a year after that before it sunk. Uh, it sank very spectacularly off the American uh, northeast coast in a massive storm. Uh, the thing just turtled, went down, and about five people got off of it. Uh, of those five, half of them or more were hung as pirates, and uh, the rest were let go. We flash forward 165, 170 years into the 1980s, and the salvage team decides to go after the Widow. They know where it went down, and they find it. And uh, from, I don't remember what year it was, 83, 86, somewhere in there, uh, from that time to this, uh, there have been occasional dives down there to pull up more of the Widow. We know for a fact that it is the Widow. There's no, no doubt in anyone's mind. Everyone knows for a fact that the Widow was a pirate ship at the time that it went down and had been for about a year. Uh, They know the name of the captain. They know a lot of the people that were on the crew. They know who was lost. It is the only authenticated pirate wreck in existence. We know for a fact it is a pirate ship, and we know for a fact that it is that pirate ship. Now, the vast majority of that ship's silverware has on it a unique symbol. That unique symbol is the square and compasses, which is distinctly Masonic. It is so distinctly Masonic that no one has suggested that it is anything else. It is a square encompasses, just like you would find at any Masonic Lodge. What the hell is it doing on a pirate ship on their silverware? Now, to put this in a little bit more context, masonry as we recognize it, Freemasonry, did not announce itself to the world until June or July of 1717. I don't remember which month it was now, but it was one or the other. Mm-hmm. This pirate ship, the Widda, went down two months before London Grad Lodge announced itself to the world. So where did a bunch of pirates come up with the square and compasses before masonry had even announced itself to the world? Playing devil's advocate, I can say, all right, maybe they got it from a ship that they plundered. That's not impossible. Right. But who else would have the square and compasses back then before masonry was even known? The British Admiralty? They would be largely responsible for the creation of masonry, presumably. But the British Admiralty didn't have squares and compasses on its silverware. So again, where did a bunch of pirates have it? No one denies that these are square encompasses. They are very Masonic in nature, and here they are on pirate silverware. Doesn't make any sense, does it? Until you start looking at everything else about the pirates. Most importantly, their most famous symbol, the Jolly Roger, the skull and crossbones. Whose symbol was that? That was the symbol of the Knights Templar, a white skull and crossbones on a black field. (laughs) So you start looking further. Scottish Rite. Uh, If you know anything about masonry, Uh, The Scottish Rite is loaded with pirate symbols, loaded with them. Uh, Masonry not only has the same skull and crossbones, you'll find that even in the Blue Lodge as opposed to the Red. The Red Lodge is Scottish Rite. 
Uh, but you'll also find all kinds of pirate flag symbols throughout the Scottish Rite. Uh, a severed right arm holding a scimitar, uh, the skeleton with the um, spear uh, puncturing a heart that's dripping three drops of blood. That happened to be Blackbeard's standard. Uh, you'll find all kinds of... These are Masonic symbols is what I'm saying. Right, They're right. pirate flags and they're also Masonic symbols. I'm riveted here. I'm, that's why I'm not... <laughs> you're not hearing much okay. from me right now because I'm on the edge of my seat listening to this. Like uh, I'm just touching the tip of the yeah. iceberg. Yeah. And I'm because I'm going at it just kind of roundabout, I don't have it all marshaled. Right. I'm hitting things as they come to me. If you go into the Blue Rite uh, rituals, the Blue Rite rituals, or the York Rite, as the Masons call them, uh, are all written in 18th century British maritime language. You can't miss it. If you hear it, it it's distinctly different from anything that's spoken today. There's a particular phrase that they use uh, for the candidate. The phrase they use for the candidate is AB. Every time the candidate's name comes up, the name isn't there, it's AB. What is an AB? And Masons will ask this question all the time. The answer to AB is very simple. If you happen to know anyone in the Navy, the only place that uses that phrase is the Navy. It stands for able-bodied, as in able-bodied seamen. Hmm. That's what an AB is. And again, this ties straight into the 18th century British maritime language that the York Rite uh, Masonic rituals are written in. Uh, in the Masonic ritual, you will hear things repeated three times for no good reason. They just repeat them three times. They're repeated down the course of the lodge, from one officer's station at one end of the lodge to the other officer's station at the other end of the lodge by means of the officer between them in the middle of the lodge. They repeat the same thing. Uh, the master in this position of the lodge commands this to be done. The guy in the middle says, the master in that, that position of the lodge commands this to be done. And the guy at the end says, I have received the message that the master at that end of the lodge insists that this be done. Why do they do it three times? Because they're calling down the length of a ship. That's why. Hmm. If you look at everything in Masonic ritual and you plug it into maritime, and specifically pirates and the 18th century, you will find a whole lot of it makes more sense than it does just by itself. Interesting. All right. And again, this is just tip of the iceberg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think we could do a whole show show on this. I'm fascinated. I want to. I want to do. Uh, I want to talk more about it. But we've already gone 45 minutes. We got to do more right, questions on. here. So uh, fascinating, man. What, well, what's the status on this potential book that you were talking about dealing with well, all this stuff? Because now this I've never gotten around right to trying to write that because there's really no money in books. It's a hell of a lot of work, and there's just no money in it. Uh, I know Masons would buy it. Uh, a whole lot of Masons would buy it. Uh, it, it Masons are really only interested in, in anything that they, they can directly connect to their particular rituals. Um, and this I can definitely tie into their particular rituals. So I would have an audience there. But um, aside from that, a few anthropologists might pick it up. Uh, it interests me from an anthropological point of view, largely, yeah. uh, and a psychological point of view, sociological. But in any event... Um, it, it's just prohibitive to write a book. It takes too much time, and you really don't make any money on it. Even if you have an audience, you don't really make any money on it. Okay. Um, I did write a play about it, though. A play about oh pirates. About and... pirates, yeah, Masonic pirates. Nice. Uh, what's the name of that? Free Man Jack, which you'll never see. It's never been put up anywhere. Wow, oh, damn you! It. I was going to go look for it after the show. Oh, <laughs> my wish. Yeah, I'd love to see it put up. Um, 
Uh, he said regarding the books, he said Gnosticism. So is there one, just one book? Because we gave him a lot here on the pirate stuff. So uh, is there one book you can recommend for Gnosticism if uh, people want to learn more? Oh dear God! Uh, depending <laughs> on where you want to go, if um, if you're just trying to get a, a beginner's handle on it, then you want to go straight to Elaine Pagels. Uh, if you want to read an excellent book on it that not many people know about anymore. Uh, the History of the Devil and the Idea of Evil by Paul Carew, uh, the last name is C-A-R-U-S, is one of the best books on Gnosticism that I have ever read. Um, most people wouldn't recognize it as a Gnostic history, but it's largely a Gnostic history. Yeah. Uh, anything that is a church heresy is a legitimate Gnostic belief. Uh, what, what the church was persecuting as heresy was Gnosticism. Uh, under its various guises. So if you want to study Gnosticism, you can go straight to church heresies and you'll get the same thing. Uh, but I recommend Paul Carew especially. He was writing, uh, I think, right about 1900, if I recall. But I do know that his book got reprinted because I've got it. And uh, it's just one of the best books that I've ever read covering Gnosticism. It goes into all the various sects. Um, it uses the, the devil as its focal point, but what it's really talking about is Gnosticism when it comes right down to it. Uh, because a lot of what the church was trying to prosecute was their idea of God was different from the idea of the Gnostics. And uh, it, it was considered heresy by the church. That's the whole point. Yeah, They had their own dogmas and doctrines and all of that. Gnosticism did not fit comfortably into that, so they persecuted it. Uh, so that would be the place that, that, those would be the two places I would start if you really wanted to get into Gnosticism. I would start with Elaine Pagels, because she's the one that really started writing about the Dead Sea Scrolls and all of that, uh, Nag Hammadi. And uh, if you really want to get into the esoterica behind it, then I would suggest Paul Carew, who I imagine is probably still in print somewhere. Okay. Uh, and if he's not, I'm sure you could find a used copy. All right. Uh, Dennis is the next uh, questioner. He says, Bruce, could you tell us about your research process for Hollywood versus the aliens? Specifically, where do you cull your info on abductees, and how do you correlate that info with specific movies? Well, all of that's detailed very solidly in my books. If, if you just look in my notes and um, my bibliography, they're all there, and I cite them all in the course of the text. Uh, when it comes to information on abductees, uh, a lot of it comes from David Jacobs, from Bud Hopkins, from um, John Mack, uh, you know, the primaries, yeah. and um, uh, Ronald Westrom, I believe, was the name of one of the psychologists, and I want to say that was the University of Wyoming. Uh, there are a number of different um, psychologists and psychiatrists that have studied the subject and written about it and done some studies. I cite and quote them. I just named one of them. Um, they're all in my notes and my bibliography extensively, and again, I cite them in the course of the text. Uh, when I'm when I'm actually referring to them, I bring their names up right. and uh, where they're located. Right, right, all right. So check those out, Dennis. Go get the uh, go get the book. Any uh, we usually ask this at the end of the show. Well, this is actually a good uh, segue too, because uh, we'll 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 get to the to the question I was thinking of just now after this first question here, Joey wants to know, it's a perfect sort of lighthearted uh, break in the moment, what is your favorite part of the Thanksgiving meal? My favorite part of the Thanksgiving meal is the giblets. Straight ah. up. Uh, I'm a turkey heart person. Chicken heart, turkey heart, 
Uh, all of the giblets. I even eat the neck. You've got to be one of the most fascinating people I've ever met in my life, Bruce. And I actually haven't even met you in real life, but uh, one of the most fascinating people I've ever talked to all these years. What with the giblets? Jesus, man. <laughs> giblets are delicious. You can make a great soup out of them, and uh, they just taste great all on their own. All of it. Uh, the gizzard, the liver, uh, the heart especially, uh, even the neck. All right. You have to be patient with the neck. But the nice thing about the neck is you can go back to it a couple times and, you know, just really work at it for a little bit because there's some good meat on there. Okay. All right. I'll have to keep that in mind. That's interesting. I would oh, say... And sweet, and sweet potatoes. I'm crazy about sweet potatoes. Okay. Sweet potatoes. All right. Just, I, I like I like the stuffing, really, and uh, and the stuffing gravy. Great too. Stuffing yep. and gravy, I think, are the two. Anything yeah. you can put gravy on ranks right up there. What I really like about the Thanksgiving meal is like that it all that it, a lot of it you can kind of like mash together and the flavors really work together so well. You know, like the mm-hmm. stuffing and the gravy, and you just get a piece of turkey in there. Oh, oh yeah, just amazing. I'm already looking forward to it. Uh, yeah, just just in general, uh, I'm actually a ham person. I'm not a turkey person, but yeah. I do like turkey. Uh, I'm also a dark meat person. If anyone's curious. Okay. Um. Yeah, and uh, so the 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 second part here is where I sort of tabled the the spontaneous question I came up with because Joey says any new f- books in the future, and uh, that's probably a good time. You kind of already answered that, so it's probably a good time also just to get sort of an update on uh, the availability of Hollywood versus the Aliens and Architects. Uh, they're they're still pretty hard to get, I believe. So is there any they, news they on that? They technically went out of print <clears throat> one and two years ago. Or two and three years ago now, I'm not sure. Uh, so it, technically they're out of print. And I've noticed a lot of scalpers online with that, which I find odd. Um, I wouldn't think that they'd be something you could scalp, but apparently you can. Uh, I am planning on getting both of them back out. Uh, I was waiting for my financial situation to become more grounded, which wasn't going to happen until after Mom passed. Uh, that's still going to take a little while to resolve. Uh, the first thing I have on my agenda once that has resolved is to uh, get the books back out. Not both at the same time. I'll probably put uh, Architects out first, and then maybe a year later put... um, I'm going to have to take some time with the second one to figure out what to do with the pictures. Mm. Uh, The second one's going to be a little more difficult uh, to get put back out, because I'm going to have to rearrange a bit of it. But uh, the first one I should be able to put back out pretty much the way it was, without without really any difficulties, I think. I'm I'm sure we talked about this, but what about about just throwing it out as a Kindle version right away? Because that seems to be... Oh, Kindle would be part of it. Yeah. I would release it in, in both published form and Kindle. Hmm. Yeah, Kindle's definitely part of anything anymore. And I imagine probably the majority of the sales would be in Kindle. First off, because it's less expensive, and second off, because everyone seems to be going with Kindle. Right. Yeah, that would definitely be. It'll, it'll be available in Kindle, I'm certain. Um, okay. What? Trust me, folks. Once Once we know, you know, once Bruce knows what's going on with these books, you'll know. Because you know, BOA Audio is the, is is the conduit for any Bruce information. So we'll uh, we'll have a big celebration once these books are available for people to get a hold of. Because I hear from people all the time though that are getting them. Just they're they're like, you know, traveling through canyons and valleys and climbing mountains and. <laughs> well, you know, you know, I, I saw a copy of it in a used bookstore once that I used to frequent uh, that I almost picked up just because I don't really have any copies. <laughs> <laughs> I think I have one copy. I have my reader's copy, and that's about it. Yeah. Um, okay, so that covers that one. James asks, 
What do you think of all these TV shows and movies about war? Is it possible they're propaganda? Could someone from the military be working on these projects to push an agenda? I think we know the answer to that last question is yes, of course. What a loaded question. You already know what the answer is to that. I wrote books about it. Yeah, it's absolutely propaganda, and it's absolutely being put out specifically to prime us for exactly that. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, that's the subject for entire dissertations or entire books, as I have written. Uh, (laughs) Star Trek in particular, uh, Chris Knowles likes to talk about this, too. We're very much on the same page when it comes to this subject. Uh, Star Trek is really a totalitarian military uh, state when you think about it. We show it benevolently, but it really is a totalitarian military state. <laughs> the military pretty much runs everything. Uh, there's this kind of gray area when it comes to the enterprise. What exactly are they? Are they a science mission? Are they civilian? Are they military? They're military. Just look at them. They're military. Yeah. They're in a warship, for crying out loud. Uh, it may be an exploratory vessel besides, but it's also a warship. Uh, and we've been trying to kind of sell this idea of uh, a benevolent military to our populace for a very, very long time, uh, which ultimately is just kind of a way of soft-selling war. Uh, You'll see movies like Starship Troopers coming out. uh, Where's that set? A desert setting, uh, going after an inhuman enemy that we're free to torture as we like, and we show all of this in the movie. We celebrate torturing the enemy. And very shortly after that, what happens? We invade Afghanistan, we invade Iraq, and we've legalized torture in the worst possible ways. Well, they were trying to sell that in advance, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah, this is all very deliberate. Very deliberate. Seems to be the case. It's troubling, but who knows, you know? They're just messing with people all the time anyway. They're just, you know, all this stuff is like, it's propaganda. That's what it is, you know? It's propaganda. That doesn't mean it isn't good. Exactly. Some propaganda is really good. Yes, it's certainly enjoyable, and uh, I may even in a lot of instances agree with it. But it is propaganda, straight up. Um, All right. Crystal wants to know, I believe we've covered this topic quite a bit on on previous uh, shows with you, but it's always worth revisiting. She, uh, She wants to know your opinion about whether or not you believe the U.S. really went to the moon and what you think about the lunar anomalies. Uh, and as I said, I, I know your answer to to the first part of that, but like yes. I said, it's always worth uh, revisiting. So your thoughts on, on U.S. going to the moon and, and lunar anomalies? If we went to the moon, we did not go the way that we said we went. Uh, there are too many logistical problems. Uh, that does not mean we did not go. We may have, we may not have. We might have gotten all of our information from robot probes. That's how the Soviets got theirs. Uh, So I can't answer that question definitively. Hmm. What we saw on TV, that was fake. Jay Widener does a better job of explaining that than anybody, and he does such a good job of it because he has a testable hypothesis. And his testable hypothesis is that Stanley Kubrick specifically uh, filmed the fake. He was the one that did this, and he shows how Kubrick did it. Well, once he shows you how... You can look at it yourself. You can look at any of the different moonshots, and you will see the demarcation line for the Scotchlight Curtain. That's it. If you light blast the images from the moon, Richard Hoagland did this, and he thought that uh, he was seeing glass cities. He was seeing something. They weren't glass cities. What he was seeing was what looked like a luminous grid pattern. That luminous grid pattern, when you light blast those images, is the Scotchlight Curtain that Widener is referring to that Kubrick was using. 
He used it for his regular movies, and he used it for his fake moon movies. Again, it's a testable hypothesis. You can see the demarcation line once it's been pointed out. You can look at it yourself and you can find it. It's there. Plus, when it comes to The Shining in particular, uh, his, his thesis is that The Shining was really a cryptic confession to Kubrick's having faked the moon shot. I fully agree with him. It's the best explanation I've heard for that horrible movie uh, ever. I've never been able to make sense out of that terrible movie. But once I heard that and started applying what he had to say about it, all kinds of stuff leapt out that even Widener didn't see. That's why I believe him. His hypothesis is testable. I've tested it myself. I have found more information than even he has found on it, and it fits directly in with what he's talking about. I'm not the only one. Several other people have as well, which, again, it's been tested, and it's being found. So I find it to be very credible, and uh, I'm throwing props to Widener here. I really wish he would write. Uh, I, I, mean, I wish he would uh, publish books. I believe he has a website, and he does talk about all this stuff quite a bit. He's put out uh, some DVDs on it. But uh, I would really like him to write a book. Yeah, yeah. I forget the movie, but uh, he did make a movie about it. Uh, I think Not, he made two. Yeah, yeah, because there's one that has a really awesome theme song. That's like Right. Yeah. There's one that goes entirely into 2001, and um, the other one goes mostly into The Shining. Yeah, yeah. Either way, it has an amazing theme song. I should make that my ringtone. Once I hear it, it gets in my head all the time. <laughs> it's like, under the Masonic moon. Oh, it's great. Great song. Uh, yeah, but I know which one you're talking about. Oh, it's awesome. It's awesome. It's yeah. like creepy and catchy, and you rarely see that kind of combination. So it's like, wow. Really Widener crazy. has actually been surpassed since he came up with his thesis. But like I said, there are a great many of us that have been looking into this. I know several people. And um, we've found a lot more than he has called attention to. That's not to slight him at all. Uh, the point is, it simply proves his point all the more. He, he came up with, an, with a hypothesis that anyone can look at and find. Hmm. Say, so, you now that you're pointing me in the right direction, dude, you're right. Not only is all that there, but there's a whole lot more besides. Yeah. That song's Masonic Moon by the Elders of Zion. Yes. Great, great, great song. Yes. Um, okay, now let's uh, see Crystal's second question here. Uh, she wants to know your thoughts on Ingo. Actually, let me uh, let me read the full part because she Ingo Swan. Yes, yeah, but go she, ahead. She name drops a book here that uh, might connect to it in a way. She says, "I've read the book by George Leonard titled Somebody Else is on the Moon. It was eye-opening, intriguing, and alarming." Uh, she's also read Penetration by Ingo Swan and wants to know your thoughts about Ingo Swan remote viewing the moon and finding non-human beings as well as technology that's not man-made structures, etc. I have read Penetration. Uh, let me preface this by saying I would love to read uh, Leonard's book. Uh, I remember seeing that when it was on the stands back when I was in high school or just starting college, and I wish I'd bought it now because it's a lot harder to come across. Uh, I very much wish I'd read that book myself. Uh, I have read Penetration, and uh, I find it to be an extremely intriguing book. Uh, anything that is said by the remote viewers always needs to be taken with a grain of salt. Uh, I'm referring specifically to a lot of the um, the latter remote viewers, uh, Courtney Brown, for instance. Uh, the, a lot of their stuff kind of comes off a bit flaky and uh, just weird. <laughs> and I'm not sure what to make of it. <laughs> they sometimes make predictions that just flat out don't come to pass. Yeah. So I always take them with a grain of salt. That being said, 
Ingo Swan was the guy that actually created the protocols for what our government uses for remote viewing. Uh, he's, he's the number one guy in the remote viewing field for the government. He claimed when he wrote his book that he had given a promise to the people that recruited him into the government's program to do all this and set up the protocols, etc. and so forth. He said they told him not to talk about it for 20 years. He waited till after 20 years, then he wrote his book. So he honored his part of the agreement. Now, that part of it, I actually believe. Um, I even believe most of what he has to say. I might even believe all of it. I have absolutely no way of testing it, is the thing. So I really don't know. And I have learned to regard these guys a little bit skeptically. Nothing that Swan has to say contradicts in any way my own conclusions about the entire phenomenon. Yeah. In other words, I don't have any great reason to disbelieve him. That does not mean that everything that he is telling me is necessarily the truth. It is possible that he is sliding a few um, deliberate inaccuracies in there just to, to not call more trouble down on himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he did say that they only asked him not to talk about it for 20 years. They didn't say you have to stay quiet about this your entire life, blah, blah, blah. Just don't talk about it for 20 years. So he said, okay. And he didn't. And then like 25 years later, he wrote about it and said, look, they told me not to wait. And I've waited for well past that time. And I'm going to tell you what I know. I find his book extremely intriguing. It does not at all contradict any of my own conclusions. Uh, I even believe that it is mostly true. It might even all be true. But I have no way of being able to verify that. So I certainly find it interesting. All right. I'm surprised you. Uh, I'm surprised you never tried your hand at remote viewing. Seems like the kind of thing you. Uh... What tells you I haven't? Ah. Uh... Tell me more. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you. Oh, wow. <laughs> what are you? Are you under a 20-year gag order too? <laughs> no, I'm not under any kind of gag order, and I've never worked for any kind of uh, official government. Uh, I've never worked for any kind of official government body or agency. Hmm. All right. Very interesting. Okay. Well, when you want to talk about it, you let me know. I want to know more. What's your Thanksgiving song? Oh, no, 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 Pass no. the cranberry sauce. We're having mashed potatoes. Oh, the turkey looks great. Lynn. Thank you for loving me. Lynn. Thank you for being there. Oh, God. Everyone's thanking. Lynn. The whole world's thanking you. Stop. Thanking Lynn. us for thanking Stop. you. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Resource. We're having mashed potatoes. Oh, the turkey looks great. Thank you for loving me. Lynn. Thank you for being there. Please. Thank you for loving me. Everyone's thanking. The whole Lynn. world's thanking you. Thanking Stop. us for thanking you. Alex asks, what, in your opinion, is the most intriguing piece of evidence regarding the pyramids to support the ancient alien theory. Uh, we may have danced around this earlier. so uh, We danced around this earlier. Yeah. <clears throat> the mere fact that they cannot exist, I think, is the best way to put it. Uh, they are staring at us and laughing at us down the millennia because they can't exist. We can't create them today. With all our technology, we cannot create them today. Uh, one of the biggest ones I like to hit on, it, this is just straight engineering, uh, the the Bavals called attention to the point that the size of these blocks, we're talking about, you know, 20-ton blocks, um, you simply can't pick these up, even with the best cranes that we've got today, industrial-strength cranes, building bridges. 
you cannot find a crane that will have sufficient torque to carry the blocks in far enough, let alone lay them as neatly as they're laid and as precisely as they're laid, uh, without snapping. They simply can't handle the torque. The tension is too great. The distance is too great to hold up that kind of weight and transport it. Hmm. That's just a very simple, crude analysis. This is our best crane. This is the weight of these blocks. This is how they are situated, and we can't do it, period. It cannot be done. But there it is. It's looking right at you, laughing at you, saying it's impossible, but here I am. Explain me. We can't. This thing cannot exist, but there it is. That is the most amazing thing about them. Yeah. All right. Let me see here. Okay, Corey. Now, this is the one we had a little trouble with, you and I, uh, when we were going over the questions. Corey, he's curious to know your thoughts. He's curious to know any thoughts you might have on Saturn death cults and all of the symbolism that's connected. And then I had to ask him. I wrote to him later and asked, what the hell are you talking about, (laughs) essentially? And uh, he wrote in to clarify a little further. So let's just go to that. He says, uh... Allow me to broaden the question to address the ancient symbolism of Saturn. That is, what has Bruce's research yielded as far as the veneration of the planet throughout history? He's uh, he's really intrigued by that whole thing. How you know how the uh, how Saturn seems to keep coming up and, and being used in various uh, memes and media sort of uh, tropes, if you will. That's probably another good way to put it. But uh, what what are your thoughts on Saturn as a whole? Well, once I understood what the nature of the question was, uh, I was the one that was asking, what exactly did you mean by that? Right. Uh, I once I understood what the nature of the question, of, question was, the best place that I can point you is to a book called Hamlet's Mill. Uh, it's by someone named DeSantiana and uh, Gerda von Deschend. Uh It's an excellent book, and it gets precisely into that question. It gets into the question of Saturn and Mars, but Saturn especially and the relation of the two planets to each other and to mythology in general. And it's amazing how much Saturn does tie into universal mythology. It's all over the place, Saturn and Mars and Venus. Uh, But they were dealing primarily with Saturn and Mars. Um, Saturn and Mars are famous for having what's called a fatal conjunction every 20 years, which has been largely what uh, has been used as an excuse for the assassination of presidents in the aught years. It used to be that every president who was nominated in the odd years got assassinated. And that was broken with Ronald Reagan, uh, who survived his. Right. The attempt was made, but he survived. And after that, it seems to have been broken. It hasn't happened. But before that, one of the explanations for why that might be the case uh, was the conjunction every 20 years of uh, Mars and Saturn. Um, and I beats me, man. I couldn't tell you. <laughs> Maybe. It's entirely possible. I do know that the ancients considered it to be an evil configuration, uh, and that's the type of thing that uh, Santiana and Foundation get into in Hamlet's Mill. Hmm. Uh, so if you really want to get into that question, I absolutely have to point you to that book. It's an excellent read. It's extremely thorough. Uh, I quote from it quite extensively in, uh, in Architect of the Underworld and uh, cite it quite a bit. I call attention to it for exactly that reason. When it comes to the Saturn death cults, that is an entirely different question and a bit beyond my ability to answer. Uh, I think what is being asked is, are there people in the government or in positions of authority or responsibility who happen to subscribe 
to some of these ancient beliefs? My answer to that would be, yes, I'm certain that there are. I'm not sure how much uh, that actually influences anything, but I'm certain that they exist. Uh, as to whether there's some, any kind of conspiracy um, involving these people, that's way beyond my ability to be able to answer. I really don't know. Yeah. I'm not even sure how I'd be able to latch on to who those people might be. I will entertain just about any kind of theory that can be thrown at me. If someone wants to make some sort of charge, uh, this is the, by the way, this is the difference between left-wing and right-wing conspiracies or conspiracy theories. Right-wing conspiracy theories almost never turn out to be correct, and they never have specifics. They just say something like, Obama plans to turn, the, turn all of America Muslim. Uh, okay, <laughs> yeah. would you care to narrow that down for me a little bit? How exactly is he going to do that? Why does he want to do that? And, and why do you believe this would be the case? Well, he just is, that's all. Okay, well, I can't go very far with that. You go with left-wing conspiracy theories, they almost always turn out to be correct. But they also give you specifics. Uh, I'll take one in particular. Uh, it was the left-wing conspiracy theorists that were saying that the CIA was using Vacaville Prison for uh, illegal human medical experimentation. They were, <laughs> but they, they named it specifically. They said, look, the CIA, they're using medical experimentation at this prison. They named prisoners that it was done on. Uh, they gave the years, and they gave names, dates, and places. It was something you could take to court. Uh, this is the primary difference between left-wing and right-wing conspiracy theories. Huh. When they give you specific charges with names, dates, places, anything that you can latch on to that you can investigate, you have to put yourself in the position of, of any police investigator, detective, or anyone in court. So you give me something that I can latch on to, and I will chase that down for you. I'll be interested in looking into it myself. But when it's just kind of a vague, what about this, there's nothing I can latch on to. Huh. Uh, I can't really investigate that other than to say, well, uh, there are people that believe that Saturn and Mars made a conjunction that was deadly, and it goes all the way back to antiquity. Um, where do you want to go with that? So if you have anything more, if you can point me in a direction on that, I'm more than happy to help chase that down. Right, right. Okay. I think we covered the Saturn death cult as, as best as we could there, or the whole Saturn connection and all that. So it's a very richly nuanced question in a lot of ways. So there's a lot there. Um, all right. Well, since Red Sun Superman was good enough to uh, join us in the chat room, I'll circle back because he has another question here that uh, I skipped originally for time concerns, but I think we got plenty of time here. So sure. uh, he says on his other theory, on your other theory, uh, Red Sun Superman says, you think Mars moved here, so what, if any, importance does Sirius play? Talk about another nuanced uh, question. So uh, do you, yeah, do you think Mars was moved here? I don't, I don't recall that. Well, uh, it, that wasn't worded quite properly. Uh, I played Henry Higgins twice for good reason. I correct people's grammar during arguments. Hmm. Uh, that wasn't worded quite properly, but I understand exactly what it is he's asking, and I can't answer that. Um, what he is asking... Uh, throw the question at me one more time again. Oh, Mars, Mars moving here and the importance of Sirius. Right, right. I think he, I think he means Mars being moved here. I think he's what he. That's said. how it sounds. That's not what he meant. Yeah. Okay. What he meant was that uh, people from Mars migrated here. Ah, uh, Martians. Then he means Martians. Yes. 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 Okay. Yes, I do believe that that is the case. Okay. I believe that we are basically transplanted Martians who have forgotten our origins. Um, that's putting it extremely simply. But yeah, basically that's what I believe. What importance does Sirius play? I believe Sirius plays importance as a reference point. Uh, I don't believe that aliens actually came from the Sirius star system. 
I do believe that Sirius is a solid reference point in the sky that they can use, and that's why it became part of our a central part of our astronomy in antiquity. Okay. Uh, Redstone Superman says he thinks that you said Mars was moved here last Rucksgiving, but I, it sounds like you don't think that. He, he just he just phrased it incorrectly. That's all. Okay. Um, all right. So you don't think the planet Mars was moved into where it is? No. Well, I, I've got it in my basement, but don't tell anybody. <laughs> all right, because some people think the moon was placed where placed where it is. So I it think it may have been. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not even going to throw that one out. It may have been. It's so perfectly engineered. You want to talk about feats of incredible engineering? The moon is incredibly engineered. It's just perfect. It anchors the planet. It anchors the tides. Uh, it, it's an amazing feat of engineering all by itself. It always shows the same side to us in its orbit, which is pretty remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, the, the moon itself is, is absolutely amazing. This is one of the reasons I like to read Leonard's book, uh, Someone Else is on the Moon. He gets into a lot of that. Yeah. Um. Okay, now we got a huge slew of questions here from uh, Joe V. I think I busted his chops last year on the show. He's the guy that does the voiceover for Been All of America, who uh, does the little intro thing. He actually uh-huh. did it like in my basement, uh, like almost ten years ago. But we still use it because it's still really good. Um, and and I, I I'll be ribbing him throughout this because he sent just a just too many questions, too many questions. I think he's going to be barred from the Stan Friedman question submission situation this year just by the sheer uh, give them an inch, take a mile situation involved in Rucks Giving. So we'll try and get to these questions because we got a good 45 minutes. We've got plenty of time to talk. Cool. Um, uh, we'll start out with number one. In many conspiracy circles, there is talk of the militariza- uh, there is talk of the militarization of the police. Specifically, instances like the Michael Brown shooting are the result of the local peace police being trained and conditioned in paramilitary tactics. Have you ever heard mention of this in circles you frequent, and what do you make of it? Yes, I've heard of that. Uh, What you're getting down to there is the Posse Comitatus Laws. Uh, The Posse Comitatus Laws are what specifically prohibit the military from being used for any kind of police action. Uh, The question is, is it ever violated? There's always been talk of using it. For instance, if you wanted to use the military to chase down uh, drug offenders, and um, drug crimes, you really can't do that because of posse comitatus. Hmm. Uh, And that gets into some dicey legal questions like, well, can we use military equipment like drones to be spying on them to do this to help us get information that we can use to prosecute them? So really what you're asking, whether you know it or not, is about the posse comitatus laws. Uh, And those do come up quite a bit in uh, legal jurisprudence. Uh, The military has been used to quell civil riots before uh, and in fact caused fatalities even under Douglas MacArthur when uh, when protesters from World War One, military protesters from World War One, uh, were protesting the government for rights that had been denied them, that they had been promised, uh, they were actually fired upon by Douglas MacArthur and some of them got killed. That was a violation of posse comitatus, or at least it, it has to best be viewed in that particular light. As to whether or not people are specifically being trained to fire on their own citizenry, I very sincerely doubt that. Mm. Uh, I have heard from people who have been in the military, uh, because I've asked them this question specifically, and, and or they have told me on their own, that they are asked a question on their applications, would you open fire on United States citizens if ordered to by your superior officer? And depending how you answer that question, 
depend is going to answer how far you go. <laughs> right, right. And the correct answer is no. I would not fire on my own citizenry if my commanding officer told me to do so. Uh, now, one may quibble with that and say, well, maybe the people that answer the other way go into a different program. So you might speculate that. But uh, I do know that the people going into the military are asked very specifically, would you open fire on your own citizenry? And the correct answer on that is no. Yeah. Okay. Uh, question number two. Now, as I said, this Joe V, he's an absolute, he's obsessed. He's, he frightens me in a lot of ways. So that's, people wonder why uh, why I try to keep Bruce at arm's length away from these folks uh, sometimes. This is Joe V's case case study number one. He's this. I'm looking at it. There's just so many questions. But uh, question number two, he says, uh, in past episodes and in Architects of the Underworld, he recently read Architects, so he's got a lot about okay. that. Uh, you mentioned of various years marked as major flap years. If memory serves correctly, the last major flap was mid to late 1990s in Brazil and Mexico City. Since then, there have been uh, there has been much of any there has there has not been much of anything resembling the major flaps of previous decades. Uh, no, has there been? He wants to know. We we, we talked about this. Uh, yeah, we already hit this by accident right. earlier. Yes. Um, to the best of my knowledge, no. The only one that I can remember having heard about was the one that was making a big stink on CNN and Fox News, which uh, right about 2001. It was it was right with right as we were militarizing abroad. Right, right. And a flap really is more there. like a bunch in, in a row, you know. So it doesn't sound like a they have right. This a flap. this was an event. Yeah. Uh, this was just a big event. But when it comes to a flap, no. Uh, the big UFO flap years. And anyone that's studying ufology, you're going to find those listed. Uh, like 1957 in particular. Um, 1957 and 1967 were huge. 1973 right. was huge. Uh, there have been a number of flaps throughout history that you can research and with a, a great deal of um, backing information on it. Uh, but as far as any recent ones, no. Right, right. How, if they had happened, you probably wouldn't hear about them anyway. Well, I was going to say actually the opposite in a sense, just because uh, by its very definition, a flap is like... People talking. Right, right. So if there was if there was anything, as he asked, if, if there was anything resembling a major flap of, in previous decades, it's like, well, wouldn't, if it was, by its very nature, if it was a flap, you would know about it. So You'd hear not. about it, right. Yeah. Um, so no, I haven't heard of any in, um, well, since the ones in um, in South America and yeah. Mexico. Um, and he wants to know if you think there's anything to suggest that flaps come and go in cycles. It did kind of sound a little bit like that, but... but They come and go in cycles. I can say that definitively. Yeah. Yes, they come and go in cycles. Jacques Vallée proved that himself in uh, Anatomy of a Phenomenon and Challenge to Science. Uh, I cite that in my chapter on Mars correlations. Uh, in fact, that is what I use as my groundwork to prove that, yes, they very specifically come at uh, at definite times. They are predictable as a heartbeat, and I've got the charts to show it, along with all of... Uh, Jacques and Janine Valet's quotes to prove it. Um, on that note, do you think that can you predict an upcoming flap at all, or do you think it's just do you just have the information on previous flaps? I can't tell you the time because I'm not looking at when it's going to happen. But uh, the next time that Mars is close to Earth, yeah, there'll be a flap. Huh. Whether you hear about it or not, they'll be around. Interesting, or at the very least, an uptick because uh, a flap would yes. generate the publicity, like we said. That's right. There will also be an uptick when Mars is at its furthest removed from Earth. So during the opposition and during the time that it is furthest away from the Earth, 
those are the times that you are going to see upsurges in UFO activity. I think the idea of a UFO flap is kind of like a like antiquated concept in a way. Anyway, I don't think it's even would, like you were saying. Uh, you wouldn't even know about it. Like you, you never really find out about a, a flap because uh, nowadays they wouldn't allow that sort of thing to. Because a flap, like like we were saying, a flap by its very nature is sort of a sociological thing too, and it's like it's, it's they put the brakes on it. That's right. <laughs> we got to put a put a lid on this fast. 1952 was was where they decided they had to do that. Right. That was when you had the flyovers over Washington D.C., and uh, it, everyone was really really scared by that. So yeah, they started putting a lid on it real quick. Yeah. Um, all right. The next question from Lunatic Joe V is. Uh, you mentioned that there were reasons to believe that Bud Hawkins was surrounded by persons who may have had, presumably, an intelligence role. You specifically mentioned Whitley Strieber. Were there any details that you did not include in Architects of the Underworld that would further draw the picture of Strieber having some sort of intelligence involvement? Well, uh, I can break that into two answers, actually. One, it's not just Bud Hopkins. All of the major researchers have had intelligence people around them, and I do cite instances of that happening. Uh, John Mack had them, uh, who tried to confront him at uh, a UFO conference. And he was already on to that person and had already booted them from the group, basically. He knew they were, fr- he knew they were fake. Uh, they'd been set up by Philip Klass. Klass came in heatedly denying it, and Mack just very casually answered him and said, Look, Phil, you know the woman. The woman was definitely a fake. She was definitely put on me. It's a logical assumption. Uh, and it is. You know, she was a fake. Uh, Hopkins has had fakes and spotted them. Uh, Strieber is just the most obvious of the lot. Now, the irony there is that Hopkins, all the way to the end, to the best of my knowledge, believed that Strieber was a genuine UFO abductee. I do not, but Hopkins was, at least as far as his public statements went, Hopkins was convinced that Strieber was actually a UFO abductee. My answer to that, which would agree with Hopkins, is that if he is a UFO abductee, he is also a pathological liar. The one does not necessarily preclude the other. Uh, So there, uh, Hopkins actually thought that he was legit. I don't. Uh, I don't know whether someone actually sicked him on Hopkins, though that is the easiest way to to, uh, explain what did happen between them. And certainly it's not an isolated case. It happened to pretty much every other UFO investigator, too. Um, yeah, he wants to also know who initially raised questions with regards to Strieber's credibility. I think they were always kind of around when he first burst on the scene, right? That's the nature of ufologies. Everyone's Spin the wheel questions. and take your pick. Uh, you'd have to take it down to cases there. Yeah. And I'm not sure who first did it, other than everybody. Uh, I really haven't come across anyone who's done any kind of examination of Strieber who has not come to the conclusion that he's pretty much a pathological liar. So as to who first did it, hard to say. Right, right. That's just kind of... <laughs> there, there's a whole book written about that called Report on Communion. If you want to get into details, uh, it, it, it's also gone into in Angels and Aliens. Uh, Keith Thompson, did Keith Thompson write that? Uh, I need to look it up. I'm not right at my computer right now. Yeah. Uh, I believe he wrote Angels and Aliens. He has quite a bit on um, Strieber as well on, in this particular question. Hmm. Um. Okay, now in, in another uh, area of your wheelhouse, he says, you note the Egyptian imagery that accompanied the description provided by an abductee. How prevalent is Egyptian imagery in the accounts of abductee, and uh, how credible do you find these descriptions? The two researchers who most went into that were Raymond Fowler and John Mack. 
John Mack was the first one to mention that it was kind of prevalent. Uh, Fowler simply talked about it in one of his particular case studies that he was writing about, which he called The Watchers. Uh, and I find it credible. I'm taking John Mack at his word, and I have no reason not to. Now, this was a credentialed psychiatrist, and uh, he's highly respected. His methodology was fine. Yeah. Um, he said that it was pretty prevalent, and he cited a specific example which had to do with um, Egyptian funerary ceremonies and uh, something having to do with Anubis. And he had one of his abductees report in great detail one of these things to him, which he had trouble finding the the proof of himself, but it turned out to be correct. It was very obscure. I can say I've done a lot of research into Egyptology myself. I had not heard of it. And it is the type of thing that I might credibly have come across in my research. Uh, so I'm taking him at his word that he did track that down and find it to be legitimate. Uh, and taking him at his word that it is fairly prevalent when it comes to abductees. I don't know how prevalent. I do find it credible, uh, largely because of John Mack himself. All right. Uh, and then he sort of has a follow-up to that. He says, if the imagery is credible, or if we consider the imagery credible, what significance does it have so far as concerns learning a little bit more about them, in quotes? I don't see, I, I don't really, that's kind of a vague way of putting it. I think he means, you know, I think he kind of like wants to tie it all together. I think you what have What can that. we deduce about them yeah. if this is the case? That's a very good question, to which I don't have a definitive answer. What I do think is the case is that this phenomenon goes all the way back to ancient Egypt. And in fact, there are papyri that describe exactly what amounts to a UFO abduction. And I cite the, both of those papyri in both of my books, as a matter of fact, uh, in some detail. One is the Papyrus of Ani, the other is the Papyrus of Ra. Uh, one was in the Berlin Museum, the other at the Leiden, as I recall. Um, they tell the same story, and it is told in, in other uh, Egyptian sources as well, which amounts to a UFO abduction. Uh, by automated figures, or figures that have been made to move. Yeah. Wax men, false men, who pick a given target up at night, fly him up into the clouds, perform physical procedures on him that leave marks. Uh, he does not recall how he got those marks when he woke up, but it later comes to his memory, uh, and he figures it out. He goes to his magician. His magician explains to him that another magician has done this to him, and then he does the same thing back to the magician that did it to him. That's a UFO abduction, at least as I understand it. Uh, the Roswell crash wreckage had what everyone who saw it described as Egyptian hieroglyphics. Whatever the marks were, and whether they were actual Egyptian hieroglyphics or not, I couldn't tell you, but everyone who saw them described them as such. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I believe that there... This could mean that these are entirely, it's an entirely automated system, which is what Jacques Vallée thought. Uh, it's simply an entirely automated maintenance system for all practical intents and purposes that is literally as old as Egypt, and, and it's possible the equipment hasn't even been changed since then. It's only been maintained, if you catch my drift. Right, right. It might mean nothing more than that. Uh, I wouldn't think that their civilization would have remained exactly the same over, you know, four, five, six thousand years. There have to have been some changes. Uh, I can't believe any civilization would be that stagnant. Let's just put it that way. So as to what it, it specifically tells us, I really can't say, but I do find it highly intriguing. Okay. 
and then finally, finally, uh, Joe V. asks, uh, you follow Jacques Vallée in proposing that purported encounters with the Virgin Mary may have an affinity with UFOs. You also, on pages 200 to 204, Jesus, seem to agree with Vallée that there is an element of religious conditioning on the part of the phenomenon. Vallée sees some sinister motives. What do you think? I do mostly agree with Vallée. Uh, it's not a question of religious conditioning so much as it is uh, initiatory behavior, I think is a good way to put it. Hmm. Uh, what he was specifically citing was an initiatory aspect to UFO abductions. I agree with him. I believe that that is uh, largely... Pardon me, I'm fizzing just a little bit. I'm going to move inside. Yeah, yeah, you're fizzing on me. Yeah, I should be fine now. All right. Uh, anyway, I do believe there is an initiatory aspect to it. Uh, he details the exact roadmap of that, and I find that roadmap to be accurate. Uh, so, yes, that's part of it. I, I, as a matter of fact, I believe that's where the mystery schools on this planet originated. That's where they got the idea. So I don't find that too terribly surprising. Um, I don't find that there's anything inherently menacing in that, and I'm not really sure Valet did either. What Valet was really talking about was that there were people that could exploit that belief, uh, that it was religiously oriented toward creating cults. And he cites a great many examples of that in the book Revelations, which was the last of his uh, trilogy, latter UFO trilogy, right? Uh, he goes into a lot of specifics on that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Rael, for instance, in Canada springs immediately to mind, um, and he listed a few others. Yeah, Heaven's Gate. There's all kinds of alien cults. Right. Uh, he was afraid of the exploitation potential by unscrupulous parties to create alien cults. I fully agree with him on that. We've seen evidence of it, Heaven's Gate being only one example. Uh, Scientology is an example of it, quite frankly. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, it, it does happen. There's no question of that. Uh, anyone can exploit this kind of knowledge in, mm, what's the right way, corrupt ways, if you want to put it, or self-exploitative ways. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, that happens. Uh, as for anything inherently menacing uh, regarding the UFO intelligence itself, I don't see that. I'm not really sure that Valet did either. Uh, I do completely agree with Valet that the likelihood of the Virgin Mary sightings uh, being UFO-connected are pretty solid. Uh, Valet was so certain of it that he, he actually referred to the Fatima sighting as a UFO sighting. Hmm. He, he didn't refer to it as anything else. Yeah, it seems that's a really strange case, uh, but it seems definitely there's a UFO connection there. Um for sure. He, he he sort of, um, I'm not really sure if he got into this just now, but because uh, I'm just confused in general by his sort of questioning here. But he says, uh, could you hazard a guess based on your research as to the purpose of all this conditioning? Um, you know, you said sort of initiative type of thing. Um, but he wants to know, you know, if this conditioning reveals anything about the intention and or culture of the occupants. I feel like if anything, it just sort of shows that they realize that we're easy to manipulate and therefore they can... You know, it's sort of like that idea of anything anything advanced seems like it's from a god or something. Seems like it's magic. Right, exactly. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Yeah, I think they know that, so therefore they're like, they just keep, you know, they don't care. There is evidence of that. There's evidence of that in the fact that, first off, the greys, which I believe are automata, they're robots of some sort, 
They are mechanical creatures, uh, artificial devices. They are essentially what we would describe as elves or pixies or little people. I believe they're designed that way deliberately, and that that's why they have appeared that way in our culture. They fulfill the same function. They do the same things. Uh, yeah, they're playing on that. And uh, in the sense that we are easily manipulated, that's part of what the government is concerned about all of this stuff. They are afraid of people exploiting it for uh, religious purposes or for personal profiteering, creating cults. Uh, and for that matter, the UFO intelligence itself, what exactly are its intentions and why does it go about things the way it goes about things? Right. That's an extremely complex question uh, that would have to be answered in stages. <laughs> yeah. But putting it simply, one of the most important things that I noticed from David Jacobs' first book, Secret Life, the most important revelation in that was that UFO abductions are not, or very rarely, are one-time occurrences. They are lifelong occurrences that begin in childhood or even infancy. These people from out there are coming to the same people down here over and over again over the course of their entire life. Now you're getting into Manchurian candidate territory because there's a mental conditioning process that occurs through all of this. That's part of what this, there's an implication in the initiatory aspect that there is conditioning that takes place. I do believe that that is part of the reason why they do this. There is conditioning that takes place. A lot of that is simply for uh, simplicity in picking people up repeatedly. Once you've gotten them used to the process, it's not going to alarm them so much anymore. It's normal to them. So they're not going to freak out about it. Now, there are all kinds of practical reasons why they would want to do that. Right. There are also practical reasons why they would want to come back to the same people over and over and over again. One of those aspects does have a kind of a menacing element to it, and that is that these people could be fifth column saboteurs, spies, agents, whatever you want to call them. Uh, and I do not believe that those are alarmist fears. <laughs> I do think that there's an element of that that does occur. We do have an awful lot of nuclear sabotage that occurs down here whenever UFOs are in the area. And I am willing to bet, I do not have any kind of ironclad evidence on this, but I am willing to bet that um, abductees have been used in that capacity in some way or another. Yeah. This would plainly alarm any government down here. I understand why that would concern them. And in that sense, uh, there is a certain menacing aspect to it. Where it becomes far less menacing is in the fact that these people have not attempted to destroy us, conquer us, enslave us, anything of that nature. Hmm. Uh, that in itself, given the fact that they plainly have the technology to do so, is far more reassuring than the fact that, uh, yeah, there could be some fifth-column agents at work. Uh, I, that is a part of UFO abductions that I think does actually exist. I don't think it is necessarily nefarious. Um, in, in, let's put it this way. They're not exactly spies so much as they are ambassadors, so to speak. Yeah. But there is a certain spy element to it. I understand that. And I don't even fault any government concern for being, uh, being aware of that and, you know, looking at it. <laughs> of course they have to be concerned about it. Yeah. Well, even if these things are benevolent, uh, you, you have to be suspicious. Otherwise, term, you're you're a fool, you know, because yes. we're we're way we're way in the uh, at the disadvantage to these 
to whatever these entities are. So we have to yeah. be on guard at all times. The best term I've heard used for it came from the National Security Agency in one of its two admitted papers at the time, which were then released, or 279 were later discovered to be there, and I'm sure a great many more after. Uh, but they had only admitted to two papers on the subject initially, and one of those described the UFO intelligence as, quote-unquote, adversarial. That's the best single word that I could possibly think of to describe the UFO intelligence. Uh-huh. It does not mean that they are our enemy, but they are not our friend either. What it means is they have their own interests, just as we have our own interests. Right. Those interests will not always necessarily coincide. So in that sense, they are adversarial. That's a very good word to describe them. Exactly. Um, all right, well, that wraps up Joe V's uh, questions. He did write a little love letter here at the end, and since I'm ribbing him, I'll, I'll read it. Since he writes it to you, even though – so I guess he expects that I'm going to read this, so we'll, we'll read it here. In your es- – oh, no, that's the question. Let me see. Here it is. I have more questions. Esoteric subjects involving comparative mythology and ancient civilizations. This is my bread and butter. However, I realize that I've probably asked about 12 questions if you count the follow-up questions, so we'll save the rest for next year. Oh, thanks, <laughs> thanks, Joe. As always, Bruce, even if I don't agree with your conclusions, as someone who earned his licentiate in theology and learned a bucket load of ancient languages, Architects of the Underworld has a lot of meat to it and proposes a rewarding thesis for the reader's consideration. Also, as always, I will be enjoying beer by the time this airs. In honor of this... <laughs> yes, he's really... I told you, this, you should see the size of this email. In honor of the season, I'll be enjoying the Mayflower Porter, a relatively obscure brew out of Plymouth, Mass. I suspect it may be hard to find in Colorado, although you guys have your own brews. Uh, although you guys have your own brews are some of the best around. So clearly he was enjoying the Mayflower Porter when he finished up this email because uh, that is just confusing uh well, cheers joe v so there you as go. a matter of fact since you mentioned that joe uh i'm in my refrigerator right now and i'm pulling out a prost dunkel uh which is a dark franconian style lager i'm reading straight off of the label this is a german and it's an actual german lager but it's made in colorado so you would have trouble finding it where you're at and since you are drinking one of your local brews uh, I'm going to pop open this one and drink this local brew uh, and just say cheers to you. Ah, there you go, Joe. See? So <coughs> he got his moment here on the show. Very good. There good. you go. Very good. Um, Happy Thanksgiving, man. Yes. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Um, that wraps up the listener submitted questions. I have a few here, uh, you know, general stuff that I want to talk to you about, so that's good. We have some time here, about 20 minutes to, to rock and roll. Um, now, we, of course... Hardcore BOA Audio listeners, they know uh, your strange connection to the to the Aurora shooting because you were there that night. We did a whole show about it, um, a captivating program, riveting episode. Um, and every time I get you on, since you're right in the heart of all this, you're in Aurora. Um, yes. You know, I want to get updates on on this story and and this really weird dude and and whatever is going on with the trial. It's been what, a year, over, obviously over a year, but it's not two years now, right? Is it just one year? Uh, it's about two years. It's been two over – so it happened in the summer, right? Was it last – It happened in the summer. It was, uh, was it like last right summer? before my birthday. It was July 20th. It was two uh, summers ago because the Olympics were going on. Yeah. The Olympic, yeah, so it was two years yeah. ago. I'm surprised this guy hasn't gone on trial yet. What's going on with James Holmes and, and Jury, all that? I can tell you. Jury selection begins on January 20th. Nice. 
that will take actually several months. Uh, they gave specific dates just the other day, as a matter of fact. The uh, DA's office actually has a list of everyone who was at the theater that night, and any of us that wish to remain apprised of everything that is going on uh, is apprised, and I'm one of those people. Nice. So I get emails all the time uh, from the prosecution's office uh, keeping all of us apprised as to the condition of the, the trial. Uh, like I said, the jury selection begins on January 20th. Uh, the trial is, ex if it goes to trial, it is expected to do so, I believe, in the spring or summer. Uh, and they did give specific dates for that, but they can't be positive because, of course, they don't know how long jury selection is going to take. It is possible that it will not go to trial, and I'm assuming merely by having heard those words that that might mean that they would simply plea bargain a confession or what have you and and have it done. Um so I can't give all the particulars on that, but that's what I've heard up to this point. All right. If there is a trial, are they going to televise it, you think? Yes. They are wow. going to televise That has been announced. Uh, they are going to televise the trial. It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. And I'm glad, because I want to see it. <laughs> yeah, I do, too. That guy's I, I can go to dude. the trial. If I want, any of us that were at the theater, we're considered victims. I was in a theater where none of this, I never saw anything, I never heard anything, uh, I never even smelled any cordite from a gun. I didn't see a drop of blood, uh, didn't hear any screams. But we were at the theater that night, and of course we all lived through the aftermath, which was quite something. Um, so, yeah, uh, I very much want to follow this and to see what's going on. I want to watch this trial. We are all allowed to come to the trial if we want. Uh, seats are reserved for us. If we want to go, all we have to do is let them know in advance on whatever days we want to go, and uh, we will have seats reserved. So I might, at some point in the course of the trial, actually show up and just kind of peek in and see what's going on. But it's nice to know that they will be televising it so that I, I don't have to do that. I can just watch it from here. Yeah. Now, clearly this guy's crazy as a bed bug, but uh, do you think we'll ever, like, know why in his mind he did this? Do you know what I mean? It's like, clearly, like like to all of us, it's like, he did it because he's crazy. But in his mind, leading up to this, he clearly had some motivation to do this. And as far as we know, we don't know what that is yet. Do you think we'll ever really find out? Do you think like, it'll ever come out? I don't think we're ever going to find out. I'll tell you what I want to know. I want to know if he was acting alone. And if he wasn't, I'm sure we're not going to find that out. Well, you say that like you have suspicions that he wasn't. I have always had suspicions that he wasn't. Interesting, interesting. Based on what? Just the Based on his explosives knowledge. Mm. I don't know how the hell he came up with such advanced explosives for his uh, apartment. And I have not yet heard a good answer to that. It was so advanced that the FBI's best bomb people had never seen it before. I don't think he could have learned that online. You don't think it's possible he's just like a savant of some kind where he like dove into this and became it obsessed with this stuff and then just became like really, you know, like a like a computer coder gets becomes a master hacker kind of thing? It is possible. I'm not going to rule that out. Yeah. But I do find that extremely suspicious. The thing was so well organized. If this guy is schizophrenic, schizophrenics do not organize this well. They just don't. Hmm. They're disordered thinkers. They are not organized. That's what characterizes a schizophrenic. Now, if this guy's plan had pulled off the way he intended it to, you have to timeline this. Uh, his apartment was set to blow up at right about midnight. He set his radio to go up at, at top volume, 
expecting someone to come into his room to set that bomb off, right. that series of explosions. It would have taken the whole building down. Yeah. It would have not only taken the building down, it would have hit the five buildings surrounding it and caught them on fire. Yeah, it would have been this like, is, it, it just would have been, it, 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 it was already a tragedy. It would have become an even bigger, like a just a monstrous event. Oh, oh, let me show you just how monstrous. This is what I mean by planning. Now, he actually did his little shoot 'em up at the Century 16 about 40 minutes after that, 35, 40 minutes after that. Now, again, he was expecting that apartment to explode any time between about midnight and, I don't know, 12.10, 12.15 at the latest. And things did move in that direction. The only thing that went wrong with that plan is they didn't actually enter the room, which would have set it off. Instead, they detected what was in there, and it got stopped. If it had gone off, then every single emergency responder unit in the state would have been at that damned location instead of at the Century 16. Right. And this guy could have gone from theater to theater just reloading, going bang, 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 all damn night long, and walked away with no one even ever seeing him. They'd never find him because everyone would be over there. That's how well organized this was, and that was plainly what was intended to happen. Yeah. That's why I'm wondering if there was if there were other people involved in this. Well, you've been very complimentary toward the police uh, force and everything surrounding this. So do you think it's just like they would never tell anybody because they would just open too much of a can of worms? Or yep. Interesting. Yep. I have not heard any indication from them uh, that my suspicions have any merit to them. I have not voiced this to them. But um, I have personally wondered... Uh, I do. It, it, my belief is that if there is uh, an organized act behind this, if there was more than one guy involved, we are never going to hear about it because it would simply panic people too much. Yeah. Because if it, if it was organized, then who? I mean, we're talking about Columbine-level stuff here. Yeah, because then it would be like, why did they, you know, why, why haven't they arrested that other guy and all that, you know, exactly like Columbine. Oh, yeah, and I have absolutely no doubt that if there is anything to this, that they are doing absolutely the best that they possibly can behind the scenes and far better than any of us could. Uh, and I have been very complimentary to them for a reason. I think they've done a stellar job on this all the way down the line from frame one to frame last, and I'm sure they still are. Yeah. Uh, I am very, very impressed with uh, the work that they put in on it. Mm. I have every confidence in them. Let me put it to you that way. So if there is something more to it, I don't think we're going to hear about it, but I do think that they will be doing everything they can about it behind the scenes. Yeah. Well, what do you – I feel like we talked about this before, but but why do you think that he told them about the bomb after the fact when he got caught anyway? Because he still could have wreaked all this havoc. Uh, oh, he knew they found it. <laughs> they were there. They weren't at his apartment. He knew they found it. He, he stood nothing to lose by going ahead and admitting it at that point. I was under the impression that they that he that they knew about it only because he told them that there was a bomb there. Well, that's another one of those things that would uh, probably come out at trial, and uh, another one of those things that we can nail down in the timeline and figure out. Uh, it's entirely possible this guy did act alone. Okay, it's possible, uh, and I would like these questions answered myself. I want to see what's going to come out. I want this trial to happen because I want to see what's going to come out. I want to hear it. Yeah. Um, it beats me. I'm not sure exactly how it was they found the explosives. What I do know is they didn't set them off. Right, right. Plainly, he would have known that they didn't set them off because if they had gone off, it would have been a there would not have been a single policeman anywhere near that theater. Right, right. Yeah, because I was always under the impression they arrested, they they got him, 
And then he was like, there's a bomb at my place, and it never really made any sense why he would tell them that. So, um, but that's that's what I that's the impression I'm under. But again, it's this whole case is very uh, you perplexing. Know, yeah, perplexing, and it's it's just been dragging on for a while. And there's a lot of stuff that sort of keeps hanging in the fringes. You know, like the journal he sent that lady. It's like are we ever going to see that thing. You know, so I really want to know. I too want it to go to trial because I want to know more about this story. Yeah, I, I want to know what happened. I want to know what went down. I voice my particular concerns and what I'm most interested in finding out, even if what I suspect was the case, and even if that's not going to come out, there will be information in the course of the trial that will tell me whether or not whether or not that was the case. Right. Um, I'll hear what I need to hear. There you go. And I had one other question here. This is kind of an interesting one. I think you, I have a few guests who are in Colorado, but uh, you're you're our closest buddy, and you're on the show the most. Uh, so I find it interesting. I'm a big proponent for legalization of marijuana, and they legalize marijuana in Colorado. And so, as I said, you're in Colorado. You kind of get the uh, the boots on the ground perspective on this. What, how do you think the whole thing has gone down out there? And and you know, would you recommend it for other states? I heard it's generated a ton of money for Colorado and stuff. Uh, it has, and that's exactly what everyone thought it would. Uh, I'll tell you what actually happened here is that the federal government finally just lightened up because it's always been squashed down. You have to understand this has been put up for vote for many years. It's been on the ballot many times, and every time it has been on the ballot, it's been voted in overwhelmingly. Every single time. And we all laugh about it every time that we vote for it. Everyone I know has voted for it. We all vote for it and we all laugh because we know the federal government's going to come in and say, well, you can't do it because it's against federal law. <laughs> so why'd you put it on the ballot in the first place? So it was just a, it was an ongoing joke in Colorado. Uh, then finally, they let the thing pass. They let it through. Basically, the feds just backed off and said, okay, you know what? We're going to let this happen. But you know why they did that? Because there were four states that went ahead and approved it, and I'm sure they went through the exact same process that we did of putting it on the ballot repeatedly and being shot down. The feds backed off because they said, look, we've got a perfect pilot program here. Let's have a look at it and see what it does. If it fails, we can always come up with some way to knock it down. We can just you know, be the feds again and say, look, you can't do this. Uh, but it's working fantastically. It is generating a tremendous amount of revenue. Uh, there have not been, uh, to the best of my knowledge, there has not been any kind of increase in accidents or anything of that nature. Uh, but I do have to say, a couple of our local uh, DJs, uh, they they have their own little shows and stuff, and one of them happened to be talking about being caught behind very slow drivers in Colorado ever since the marijuana law passed. And the other guy was with him and laughed, and he said he'd noticed the same thing. And I laughed even harder because I had just been thinking the same thing the same day. <laughs> I'd been caught behind a slow driver, and I'd been caught behind slow drivers for several days in a row. Uh, when you get people who are stoned, they frequently drive slower than everyone else because they're, you know, concerned about being pulled over. Yeah. So uh, if anything, it's been safer and slower on the streets since they passed the uh, marijuana laws, and it has been noticed by myself and others. Uh, it, and it could be some other cause, but uh, I think that's a, a likely explanation for it. Uh, I don't see that there's been any kind of detriment for its having been passed. Uh, I do know that it's generated a tremendous amount of revenue, which is what it was intended to do in the first place, and there's no reason that they shouldn't be doing any of this. Um, I don't see the downside. Hmm. Uh, I, if there is a downside to it, I have not seen it. It seems like the logical thing to do. Uh, 
you know, you talk about wanting to get out of this hole we're in for uh, yeah. for financially this 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 mess we're in, in in the country. It's like, well, why don't you just? I saw a chart anyway that was like uh, it, it it yields the most profit of any crop that there is yes. just by the sheer nature of it. Absolutely. Look, we've seen a historical precedent for this before in Prohibition. Did Prohibition work? No. <laughs> I'll yeah. tell you one thing. We've had a hell of a lot more problems with having legalized alcohol than I can even conceive of by uh, legalizing pot. Yeah, and, look and at all those that. drunk driving accidents. It's ridiculous. That's right. And I'm not even suggesting that we go back to prohibition with alcohol. I wouldn't even begin to suggest that. What I'm saying is that prohibition didn't work for alcohol. We did legalize it. We have had more problems legalizing it than I than I can even anticipate for having legalized pot. Yeah. All right. Uh, let me see. Well, we got five minutes. I got one more here in the chat room. Uh, Red Sun Superman. He wants to. He says since you're into comics, what heroes do you like, and are there any that you don't like for any reason? Well, first off, I'm a major Batman fan, which was why I was at the theater that night. Uh, I just love Batman in all his incarnations. Uh, well, almost all of his incarnations, and Scooby Doo, same thing. Um, Did you watch the? Let me interrupt. Did you watch the Scooby Doo wrestling movie they made? <laughs> Oh, wait, wait, yes, I did. I was about to say, what's that? Yes, I did. Yeah, it's like Scooby-Doo goes to WrestleMania or something? Oh, no, 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 wait, I didn't see that. They they had a wrestling thing on one of the uh, Mystery Inc. cartoons, so no, uh, I'll have to look that up. Yeah, yeah, it's like a new movie they made uh, last year or something. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, it's been <laughs> about a year since I checked, so uh, I'll have to go to Netflix and have a look. I'm sure I'll enjoy it. As, as for superheroes I don't like... Um, Boy, that's kind of hard to say. I can tell two, the two that I consider the lamest that were ever created uh, are Captain America and Aquaman. Oh, wow. But what Marvel has been able to do with Captain America in their movies is just flipping amazing. I mean, if they can take someone as lame as Captain America and actually make him one of their better characters, wow, I'm impressed. Uh, so it, it's not really that there are any superheroes that I don't like. There are just some that are lamer than others, and even the lame ones can be made to work really well. Yeah. All right. I believe that that closes it all up, man. That covers everything. So we got uh, like three minutes left. We got an update on the book situation. It feels like we talked about at the very beginning of the show with the you know with the passing of your mom. It does seem like you have a lot. Uh, on the horizon, a lot of potential here, a lot of uh, potential energy uh, festering. So, you know, have you given any thoughts of what you might be doing in the next uh, few months, next year, in 2015? You know, what people might expect from Bruce Rux, aside from, of course, uh, Rux giving 2015. Wow, do I wish I could answer that question. First, right. I have to find a uh, reliable, stable source of income. Uh, I'm looking at trying to go into freelance copy editing because I happen to be extremely skilled in that area. Uh, it's just a question of finding the jobs, finding the work. Hmm. Uh, so I'm kind of looking at that. Uh, I am looking at getting the books put back out. I was looking at that last year, but I got delayed because uh, Death Watch went on a lot longer than expected. Um, so that uh, is kind of what I'm looking at in 2015, at least for the moment. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, let me see what we got here. We got about two minutes left. This is crazy. We got We got some extra time. I'm stunned. See, we, want... never have, we never have problems uh, filling the time. No, usually we go way over. That's why I'm stunned. <laughs> I think I hurried you along on some of those original first questions because I was like, listen, we, we're going uh, to be here all night if 
if we dig into deep into these questions. Like that pirate stuff, dude. I want to talk more, uh, not right now, but I want to talk more about this whole pirate thing with you. Uh, no, I could go on for ages about that. That's the whole point. Yeah, you, you should, uh, when you get the chance, uh, maybe maybe for next year's Ruxgiving, uh, maybe put together like some, some stuff you want to talk about with pirates and we'll... We'll do sort of a pirate-themed Rux giving next year because uh, sure. I, I find that whole thing like really, really fascinating. Oh yeah, if people are interested. I, I definitely get into it. Oh, and people have been harassing me about if you're ever going to write for us. So uh, of course the invitation is still out there for you to join up at BOA and, and uh, send me some stuff. I'll post it if you want, or or log in and post it. The only reason I haven't up to this point is because I was kind of under a depression for the last three years, and mm. the last year especially was a little rough. Yeah, I totally understand. I know the listeners do too, so I, I just figured, uh, you know, it's like OCD. They, they're going to want to know why I didn't bring it up. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, but maybe that could be a good outlet for your pirate stuff if you want to write stuff about pirates and Templars and stuff. Uh, you know, BOA would be a great place to uh, post that stuff, so we'd be happy to have it. So. Oh, sure. Might be a good uh, jumping off point. Um, and I guess we're, we're jumping off the live stream in a moment, so I want to thank all the folks who tuned in, all the folks who joined us in the chat room. Great turnout in the chat room, awesome folks in there asking questions, talking about the show. Thanks for tuning in, folks. Thanks to all the folks who weren't in the chat room but were listening live. And, of course, thanks to all the folks who uh, sent in questions. Tons of great questions, uh, just, a, just a slew of different questions, all different sort of topics. I really enjoyed it. So thanks to those folks who submitted questions as well. Uh, okay, and then we just lost the live audience, so I'm just going to thank you, Bruce. Thank you so much for coming back on the show, man. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's always a pleasure. It really is a lot of fun. I really enjoy the uh, the Ruxgiving festivities. It, it's amazing. Uh, it shouldn't amaze me, given the amazing feedback we've had all these years, but the the, the fervor, the excitement that, that comes off these folks uh, as Ruxgiving is coming around, it's really amazing. So, And uh, that's, all, that's all about you, man. That's all about your stuff and all about, uh, you know, you're not afraid to uh, – you don't pull punches, and you're not afraid really to uh, say what's on your mind say what you think. So I think people really like that, and it resonates with them. I'm amazed every year that they still want it to keep coming. <laughs> <laughs> say, okay, fine. You know, if, if you want it, we'll do it. Yeah, well, they're a fantastically uh, loyal listenership. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and given that it's Ruxgiving and, and the Thanksgiving holiday, of course, I want to thank all those folks out there. Thank you for your support of the program. You guys are the best. Uh I guess we'll we'll do the wrap up here, Bruce. Uh, if you want to get going, you can. If you want to chat for a bit afterwards, you're more than welcome to. Uh, just give me like two minutes here to wrap up the program. Oh, I'm good. All right. Yeah. So just hang on a moment, and uh, we'll say good night to the MP3 listeners as well, folks. If you're listening to this right now on Blog Talk and you have no idea what this is, who we are, or what you've stumbled into, you are into Banal of America Audio. The website is banalofamerica.com. Pretty simple, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there by punching in Banal of America. Pretty simple. Just how I spelled it, Banal of America. That'll bring up the page. Feel free to like us. That's where you can find out more about BOA, what we've got cooking for you in the not-too-distant future, all that fun stuff, future episodes, news on the program and the website. Banal of America on Facebook, kind of our in-house notes section of the web. Uh, what you're listening to is a special edition of BOA Audio. It is our Rux Giving Special. I believe this is our third year. It might even be our fourth at this point. We've done quite a few episodes here with Bruce over the years, and all of those can be listened to right now in the BOA Audio Archive, absolutely free. 
How do we do that? That is via donations from the BOA Audio listeners. There are two ways you can help us out. Head on over to banalofamerica.com and click the PayPal button. That will bring you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe, secure, and simple. But if you don't trust that whole online banking thing and you want to just make a snail mail donation, you can do so by going to Banal of America and jotting down our P.O. Box address. All right, let me light a cigarette here. Yeah, I'm about to do the same thing. Yeah, because this is really... It's getting long on the tooth, folks. Uh, let me see here. What's next for Banal of America? Well, this is Rock's Giving, so clearly the answer is the BOA Audio Holiday Special featuring Stanton Friedman. That will be coming at you probably in about three weeks, maybe four weeks, sometime around the Christmas holiday. And it is going to be a big one, my friends. It is the 10th annual BOA Audio Holiday Special featuring Stanton Friedman. I'm going to lock in all the important dates and times sometime in the next week after Thanksgiving. That will not be a live program. It will be released as a tape show. And I'm hoping to do some special stuff for the 10th annual holiday special. So stay tuned to Banal of America for that. BOA Audio Season 9 is really right now still in the planning stages. We're going to be coming at you sometime in January. We're going to be launching Season 9. I've already got a great list of potential guests for Season 9, folks that I really, really want to talk to, and stories that will absolutely blow your mind, my friends. Some really compelling stuff. So that hopefully will be coming at you sometime in January, most likely the middle of January at this point. I've kind of had some things delayed over the course of the last few weeks that have sort of set my clock back a little bit. But definitely in January we'll be coming at you with BOA Audio Season 9, and it is going to be an amazing adventure, my friends. And with all that said, I want to thank all you folks out there for joining us on another edition of Ruck's Giving. What a great uh what a great evening, man. Just a really enjoyable night and uh I really enjoy it every year and like I say to Stan when we do the holiday special, it's like I don't really even feel like it's Thanksgiving until I uh, until I have Ruck's Giving. It really is. It's gotten to that point now in my life and I love it. I think it's awesome. You know, I'm going to I'm going to get off this phone, crack open a beer and uh and start thinking about all the great Thanksgiving meal and what I'm going to be doing for Thanksgiving and uh you know, all that fun stuff. I don't know what your Thanksgiving traditions are. I like to, uh, I came up with a new one in the last few years. I like to watch shows. You know how, like, shows, like sitcoms and stuff, they do the Thanksgiving show? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What I do is I save, they always show them, like, ten days in advance, way too early. So what I do is I save them on my DVR, and then when I eat my Thanksgiving dinner, maybe right afterwards or before, I watch the Thanksgiving-themed shows of my favorite shows. That's kind of a fun thing to do, so... And I also watch whatever the big summer movie was on Thanksgiving. Usually they're out by then. You know, I think I'm going to be watching Tammy, uh, the comedy film with Susan Sarandon uh, tomorrow. So we'll see. But that's the that's I'm kind glad of my you mentioned thing. that. I need to look into that too. Yeah, it's a funny movie. Uh, Melissa McCarthy, she's the star, but she's great. So that's kind of my big uh, my big Thanksgiving thing. And you know, it's it's cool in a way. It's kind of weird too because. For a lot of folks, their big Thanksgiving thing is listening to this show and listening to the Rucksgiving special every year. And a lot of people have said that. They write to me and they're like, oh, oh this, is my, this is my Thanksgiving tradition. I'm going to be listening to this on my way to my 
to my uncle Stu's place and all this other stuff. So it's it's uh it's pretty cool that we we are part of people's lives like that. So <laughs> I, I want to thank you, Bruce, for for really embracing this whole concept and being a part of it. Oh, that's fine. I'm flat. I'm flattered, surprised, and pleased. Uh, I'm glad that that everyone seems to get something out of this. I'm just like I said. I'm amazed every year that anyone even wants to do another one. So, okay. I think it's going to happen uh, many many more years into the future. I'm sure. That's um, fine by me. And of course. Thanks to all the great listeners out there. Thanks to all the folks who stepped up at the end of Season 8 and made donations. And thanks to all the folks who have just been in tirelessly supporting this show for all these years. I hope you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday. For the folks outside of America, have a turkey or something. Uh, enjoy uh, enjoy something for us because I want you to really uh, know how much you guys mean to us. Thank you so much for your support of this show. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Have a great Thanksgiving, folks. Next time you hear from me, it'll be the 10th annual BOA Audio Holiday Special featuring Stanton Friedman. Until then, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.